This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Heretofore, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> doing good. Yeah, I'm uh, enjoying it. It's, it's springtime, you know. It's, oh, it's yeah. an exciting time. It's warming up, and I'm, I'm loving it. You and I, Paul, have been doing this for about a year. I was looking at our first recording, and it was in April of 2021. Oh, and it's okay. now April 2nd of 2022. I was just thinking that. I was thinking we had to be getting close to a year. That's yep. It's amazing. I can't believe it's been that long. It's been so much fun. <laughs> it has been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to many, many more. And I'm looking forward to today's episode. I'll, I'll start with a question that I think will get us right into the episode. Paul, what have you been reading? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that will get us right in. I have been reading Jane Austen, Jane Austen, Jane Austen. I've been uh, really enjoying it. It's just been kind of a deep dive over the last couple months, but especially the last couple of weeks is when I've really mm-hmm. just kind of immersed myself and it's been absolutely wonderful. It, I don't know why, but springtime and reading Jane Austen seems to tie in really nicely together, actually. I think so, too. Uh, that's what That's what I've been doing. Uh, as well. That's what I've been reading. I have read a few other things, which we'll bring up on a another podcast, I think. But um, I actually, this past week, finished Mansfield Park and Persuasion. Oh. <laughs> Just well, what a coincidence. That's, actually, I, I finished the exact same too. Oh, did you? This week, <laughs> which we did not plan. So that's really funny. No. And earlier in the year, um, it was actually in February, I finished uh, Sense and Sensibility. And then sometime in the middle there, I read Northanger Abbey. The way that I've been doing this, I mean, I think both of us are, have been fans of Jane Austen for a long time, but um, I, I've about a year or so ago, my wife and I sat down and thought, you know, we both love these books let's read them together. Let, you know, I'll read them. And I said, I'll read them to you while you do things that, you know, are kind of what you're doing with your hands or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, w- w- you know, that'll be kind of a fun way to do it. And so we started with Sense and Sensibility and got a little bit waylaid. We were enjoying it, but it's kind of hard, you know, with all the mm-hmm. kids. But then when we decided to do this, um, we, we recommitted and I read Sense and Sensibility Tour, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. And then on my own, just, uh, you know, I did Mansfield Park. Um, I kind of figured, um, Emma and Pride and Prejudice are the two that I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I, you know, remember the, the rest of them and, and love them for their reasons. It was, it was those two that I thought, well, if I can't get around to those two, I'll still be okay today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, as usual, we're very much on the same page. I, I took a very similar approach and I had read Northanger Abbey, oh, maybe a month or six weeks ago. Um, and then I read Sense and Sensibility a couple of years ago, you know, relatively recently. Mm-hmm. And like you, Jane, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Emma, I didn't really reread because I feel like those are the ones that I, I know the best. But yeah, I may lean on you a little bit when we discuss Sense and Sensibility today, because even though I read it a couple of years, that's couple years ago that's the one that i'm i have strong memories of it but that's definitely one since it's been a couple years where i don't feel quite i feel a little more rusty on that one so i can't i can't quiz you on certain passages and what page they're on right well (laughs) you can try but it might get ugly (laughs) no that's the thing about these i i i find that i i i love them and i have so much fondness for many of the parts of them um but I'll admit there are still times when I'm like, I don't exactly know what I just read mm-hmm. uh, because the language is a little bit more, I don't know, maybe a little more formal. There's a lot of mm-hmm. semicolons and long sentences, uh, but man, I love these books. I love Jane Austen. 
Um, let, let me ask you that. What, what is your general background with Jane Austen? When did you first discover her? I know she's one of your favorites. So yep. um, let me know kind of how that all developed. Sure. Yeah. It dates back, you know, 20 ish years ago when I was in college and I was an English major. So getting, you know, exposed to all these different classics. And I took, you know, a couple of Brit lit classes. And I know that I read a couple of her books in there. But the one that really opened my eyes was there was a semester long seminar that I took with someone named Professor Ray, who we will actually um, (laughs) be chatting with later in this episode. And um, boy, that class just completely blew my mind and really solidified my love for Jane Austen. She I'll get into her bio and stuff a little bit later, Professor Ray, but she, let's just say she is a a scholar, but also a fan and her knowledge, but also just her passion and excitement for Jane Austen was so contagious. And both my wife and I took that class together and it just helped create this lifelong love. It was really fun. So yeah. How about you? How did you get exposed to Jane Austen? Mine's a little bit embarrassing because it's similar. It was about 20 years ago. I was taking a British literature class in college with my wife. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> very similar. Ray, you know? <laughs> no, and the teacher had us read Pride and Prejudice. I'd never read any Jane Austen before. And so it was my first exposure to her. And I was pretty excited. Oh, Paul, I had a bad experience with it, though. I, I didn't enjoy it. And mm. it, I, it was... I had a hard time penetrating the text, and I rem- I still remember um, vividly one experience when I was trying to read it. I was sitting on my apartment, you know, in my apartment. I was on the couch, and I had my feet up over a chair, and I fell asleep while reading oh. Pride and Prejudice. And something happened, and I woke up, and because my feet were over the chair, it had, I guess cut off the circulation to my to my feet. <laughs> oh no! So, so something happens, and I'm still kind of asleep. And I stand up, and I have no feeling in my legs, and so I just go falling right into the wall. Oh, that's man. my first experience with Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was love at first sight. <laughs> I think she'd probably appreciate that. Yeah, um, that's hilarious. But as sometimes happens in her books. I discovered the folly of my ways and mm-hmm. that my first impressions were completely um, unfounded and quickly fell in love with her. But it, it took a couple of years because I was kind of like, oh, she's just not for me. Um, mm-hmm. And in that time period, I went on like a, a, a book literary tour in in England and we went to Chawton. We went to Jane Austen's home. And I actually have a, a, a you know, again, embarrassing photograph of me outside the home just kind of looking you know, bored, like on purpose to, <laughs> just to emphasize it. Right. And yeah, I kind of wish that I didn't have, I don't, actually don't know where that photograph is, but uh, you know, it's kind of one of these things of like, Oh, the folly of youth or whatever. Yeah. But, but the thing that really kind of got me to, to give, give her another shot was someone kept on telling me, you just, you have to watch the 1995 mm-hmm. version of Pride and Prejudice. And I'm like, that is a really long television show. I don't think that I will be doing that. But it, I, I did finally. I did it on my own. I was just me. And I, I loved it and thought, okay, if there's that much going on in there, I got to do it again. And so I reread it. And, I, you know, I think it just it just helped me, helped me kind of learn a little bit about how to approach it and 
and things that I could look for and, and, and grab onto. And I really haven't looked back since it's been, it's been a blast. And she's one of my wife's favorite authors. Sounds like maybe uh, yours as well, or at least had a good experience with all that. Yeah, no, definitely. <clears throat> so she's read them all and we watch the adaptations kind of whenever we get a chance to, you know, sometimes on a Sunday evening, it's like, what should we do tonight? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing I'm in the mood for <laughs> yep. know, is a period Absolutely. piece. Uh, you know, let's see if there's anything that's been done lately. And so, you know, we really, really do enjoy, enjoy her work, enjoy the stories, enjoy the wit and the, the, just the fun characters. We'll get into that today because we are planning on going through each of the books. Now, Clearly, this could take, we could do an episode every single book, I think, and Mm -hmm. we would have a lot of fun and and a lot to do, but we're doing this in one episode, essentially, which I guess if it goes long, maybe we'll split it into a part two. We don't know yet um, where that's going to go, but we are planning on going through them today. So we'll get into some of the specifics and some of our joys, and we will toward the end because we forced ourselves to do this list our rankings, which uh, is a stupid thing to do, but right. we're going to do a stupid thing and, <laughs> and and try to do that because I thought it would be fun not to just, not to just say, oh, I love them all, which is true. Uh, but at the same time, try to figure out which one really is communicating with me right now. I was a bit surprised. My rankings changed um, yeah. when I sat down to do them again. Mine did too. Yeah. I, I was really surprised about that too. Yeah, so I, th- I think that might be kind of fun to to see and discuss why, and that will be the purpose of ranking them, not not because they're really rankable in some mm-hmm. ways, but you know because it could lead to some of those fun conversations. Um, we also did a poll with with listeners on Twitter, which had a pretty good turnout of a few hundred, and that also surprised me. The results of that, but we'll share those toward the end of the episode. Um, we're going to be discussing these books in the order in which she wrote them, not necessarily in the order she published them, which there really is only um, a, a slight difference. And, and we're going to be doing the six kind of main ones. You know, I, I'll i be honest with you, I, I've never actually read like Sanditon or um, some of those, uh, you know, unfinished novels, the Watsons for example, or Lady Susan. I've never read it. You know, these are kind of known as her juvenilia or unfinished works. And I've, I haven't read them. Um, I would like to, and this project actually made me go, I'm going to keep going. You know, I plan to yeah. read Emma and Pride and Prejudice this year. It'll be kind of fun to say on um, the calendar year 2022, I read all of her books, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually did read the juvenilia back in that same class uh-huh. and I don't have really strong memories, but I would like to revisit it. I do remember that, Oh, you know, it is early, clearly early in her writing mm-hmm. career, but you get those little glimmers of what's to come, which is always kind of fun with an author you love. So it's definitely worth the investment, if, especially for somebody who loves Jane Austen to go back and have fun with those. Cause they really are, you know, like I said, it, it's like this little preview of what's to come. So you should so- definitely do that. So let me ask you, um, I I do want to, because have you ever watched the um, the Whit Stillman film, Love and Friendship? No, I haven't. Oh, Paul, you, you have got to watch this film. I'm trying to remember. It's I think it's based on Lady Susan, but it may be kind of a combination of a few of her of her works. 
and it is it is so fun and so funny. Um, and I'm going to play you just a little bit of a scene from it. This is a scene from from Love and Friendship that I just think is so fun and funny, and it makes me want to go and read the books, even though they might be quite different. I don't know. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, <clears throat> I believe there were only ten. Really? <laughs> Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent. <laughs> well, then, which, which two to take off? <laughs> Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well... After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots, don't murder, uh, don't covet thy neighbor's house or wife, you, one simply wouldn't do anyway, <laughs> because they are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay that i think you need to take that as an assignment to watch love and friendship Absolutely, <laughs> no that's great and i kept seeing it pop up and i actually didn't really know what the connection was so i'm glad you brought that up i, I definitely will but but that's kind of my my limited experience with any of her other works other than the main six that you see published and that you get in boxed sets and all of that and it definitely like i say makes me want to wants makes me want to keep going Mm -hmm. um, but the way we're going to be approaching these today is starting with her earliest written one, which is Northanger Abbey, even though this was published after she had died uh, at the same time as Persuasion. Um, in the very tail end of 1817, you know, the, the frontispiece says 1818, but it did come out in December of 1817. Uh, but she, she likely wrote this back in the, in the 1790s. Maybe she had some, you know, revisions and such. There's evidence for that because of name changes probably was kind of tinkering with it but at the same time it's it's the first one that the first novel that she um, wrote uh, in these in this sequence and then we'll go into sense and sensibility pride and prejudice we'll take a little bit of a break to um, speak with Professor Ray and then we'll come back for Mansfield Park Emma and persuasion that's kind of what we have going on today so buckle up. We don't know yeah. how this is going to go, but we hope it's delightful. <laughs> I hope so. I hope to do her credit. I think it's impossible to, you know, pass along how much I love and respect her her work, but we're going to do our best and we're going to have fun with it like we always do. So, All right. Northanger Abbey, Paul. I don't even know exactly where to begin, um, it, but this is the, the this is, um you know, again, an early book. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I kind of think that that shows yeah. in, in the book. Um, it's very well known as being kind of a satire on the Gothic romance um, uh, mysteries and, and thrillers and, uh, you know, kind of that um, horrific um, <laughs> kind of writing. Right. And she's often coming around and, and taking little pots at, at other authors and what they're working on. And mm -hmm. it's, it is a lot of fun. It is. Yeah, I would actually say it's probably one of her, if not maybe her funniest novel, one of the very funniest novels. Um, like for the reasons you just said, some of it overtly her kind of mm -hmm. taking some pot shots and stuff. But I don't know if it was her youth being a little more brash or whatever. But, you know, it, it does have some subtlety like her other ones. But I feel like a lot of it is more on the surface. 
and also just the character herself you know Catherine Catherine, mm -hmm. she's just young and naive and and kind of just all out there you know just a, a teenager who is feeling everything very dramatically and overreacting and falling for you know certain people and realizing later that she shouldn't have and all of that so yeah it's just it's so much fun when i reread it i it was one i didn't have very strong memories of overall mm -hmm. because it had been so long since i read it and it didn't really have that gravitas of the you know the more well-known ones but i was so glad to revisit it because it like you said it you can tell that it's young or it's an early one in some ways but i kind of enjoyed that it was kind of like a little bit of unfiltered jane austen yeah and i love how it begins with Catherine Moreland introducing her. This is chapter one, the very first lines. I mean, we all know the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, but I think this is a really great first line too. No one who had ever seen Catherine Moreland in her infancy would have supposed her born to be a heroine. <laughs> her situation in life, the character of her father and mother, her own person and disposition, were all equally against her. <laughs> it's just such a fun start to this. And mm -hmm. it goes into her love of books and this this idea of, you know, kind of a naive, as you're talking about, heroine who feels like she's going to eventually one day live through the plot of one of her books. Um, and that's very, that's a great setup and, and one that I've loved in other se uh, settings as well. I mean, that's how Anita Bruckner's A Start in Life, um, her mm -hmm. first novel begins is, mm -hmm. is this character who kind of feels betrayed by all the books that she read <laughs> that suggested yeah. she'd have a very different life. And even Elizabeth Taylor's um, Palladian has a very similar kind of, um, of premise to it of, of, you know, women, young girls who are a little bit in their mind. And, and, you know, you think of other fun ones too, like um, Anne of Green Gables, you know, just her love of, of these stories mm -hmm. and, and poems and, and the, the drama that can go on. Um, even when life itself can be fairly mundane. Um, but this is Catherine Moreland, you know, no one would think she would be a heroine, but here we go. Here's her story. <laughs> I know what a great setup. And I love that, you know, all of her heroines, Jane Austen's heroines are, are very different, but I do feel like Catherine in particular is very different. She stands apart from some of the other ones in a lot of ways, just even by that setup you just read, like there's nothing about her that sets her up to be the heroine of this novel, but here we go. And it's kind of nice. There's another quote you mentioned that they're talking about, you know, her love of books and the escapism. This is a really long quote, so I'll, pro I'll cut it off somewhere in the middle. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's talking about books and novels. And it says, and if a rainy morning deprived them of other enjoyments, they were still resolute in meeting in defiance of wet and dirt and shut themselves up to read novels together. Yes, novels, for I will not adopt that ungenerous and impolitic custom so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding, joining with their greatest enemies and bestowing the harshest epithets on such works and scarcely even permitting them to be read by their own heroine, who, if she accidentally takes up a novel, is sure to turn over its insipid pages with disgust. And, you know, it goes on from there, but I just like how it's kind of like, you know, it reminds me in some ways of kind of like Don Quixote, where it's kind of like this self-referential mm -hmm. like humor where she's kind of doing a pastiche on some of the very things she's doing within that book. And it's also interesting because I think, like you said, she's reacting against a lot of this drama and over the top um, novel stereotypes from the past, while she's also embarking on 
a career that's really going to mm-hmm. fundamentally change that. I mean, whether she knew how far she knew that she would get into all of that later, I don't know, but it's really fascinating that this early on, she was aware of it and to kind of see how that, you know, plays out in her later novels is really interesting too. There, there are a lot of fun, um, lines about reading and books in all of her books, but also another one in Northanger Abbey that I'll bring up. This is where Catherine is talking to, you know, the, the hero, the, the hero of the book, Henry Tilney. Um, and he's older and kind of loves Catherine because of her naivete. He, some people think he's a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a little bit, he takes advantage of that situation and maybe feels like it's his job to teach her. And I kind of think maybe there can be some validity to that, but I don't think he does it in any kind of malicious way. I really like Henry Tilney. Um, but I, I love how he's talking to her and she's a little bit embarrassed because of her love of, of reading and of these kinds of books. And he says to her, uh, well, first off, she says, but but you never read, read novels, I dare say. And he goes, why not? Because they are not clever enough for you. Gentlemen, read better books. And I really like his response here. The person, be it gentleman or lady, who has not pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I have read all of Miss Radcliffe's works, and most of them with great pleasure. The Mysteries of Udolpho, when I had once begun it, I could not lay down again. I remember finishing it in two days, my hair standing on end the whole time. (laughs) Love it. And it's just, they have a fun relationship. And I also really like how this book um, that, you know, goes into some of her, some of her horrors, you know, there's some pretty creepy passages and some frightening moments when, you know, in the evening when Catherine is at Northanger Abbey and imagining, you know, all kinds of bad things happening or trying to find, you know, secrets in her own, in her own room as if those would be there, you know, right? Uh. <laughs> she fully expects them to be there and it's just fun. Uh, the other thing I have to bring up that I thought was just ingenious and so fun is the kind of antagonist in the novel is, is just a buffoonish frat boy almost, or, mm-hmm. you know, just a, 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 John Thorpe is his name. And, I hate him, but I love him too, because you can see him so much today in all these guys who pull up in their big trucks and yeah. are always talking like, well, I could make it down that road, but I know you can't. And, you know, all this, because <laughs> that's how he is with his carriages. And it's just all about this kind of stuff. And he's just kind of an, an idiot. Um, and he leads to some, you know, some of the suspense and, and whatnot in the book, but but it is, it's a fun one. She's already got some really fun characters. Is, is, I think I agree with you. They're, they're a little, maybe more um, caricatures in some ways, mm-hmm. but man, they're still so much fun. And um, boy, I was really glad to, to, to see this one. And, and uh, as far as um, adaptations go, we're going to talk about those just a little bit, listeners. Um we watched, I, I had seen it before. I had seen the 2007 Andrew Davies version that has Felicity Jones as Catherine Mortland. Um, but I didn't remember it at all. Uh, but we watched it again last night. And man, I just, you know, again, it was so fun. So yeah, no, that's interesting. Cause that's one I, of all of these stories. I'm trying to think this is one I've definitely not seen an adaptation of. And I was curious if you were going to have any suggestions. Um, I, and- I really like it. And, and it's on, it's on YouTube in high quality that's i don't fully know if it's a completely legal version i I mean it's been up for several years now 
Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but I couldn't find it anywhere else. So we just watched, um, we just watched it there. And yeah, again, it was, it was a lot of fun. Nice. I was just, we were watching uh, Rogue One last night with Felicity Jones. So <laughs> I was just thinking that I hadn't really seen her in very many other movies. So that's, there's my opportunity. It ties that, things together nicely. That classic, um, you know, Jane Austen adaptation in space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When the Death Star <laughs> popped around the corner, I was very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> my Death Star can go down. The- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. Um, other things that I have on this one is uh, we do have, when when I asked listeners to, or, you know, I guess Twitter followers, I don't know if they're all listeners, but folks to rank these, I also asked them to kind of put in a few thoughts, particularly for ones that uh, Twitter only allows four options. So Northanger Abbey was not something people could vote for, but I said, you know, for those that aren't here, go ahead and put in some of your reasons why. Sad to say that out of a few hundred votes, Northanger Abbey got three um, write-ins and one of them I'm not a hundred percent sure wasn't just a hey we can't forget this book I don't know if they would really sit there and and say this is absolutely my favorite Um, but uh, you know there was there was it Tara Olmstead says it is her favorite um, premise which mm. I can see that. I think it is a lot of a lot of fun. So it, it can be difficult reading because the heroine's actions are so embarrassing, but the idea that she projects a romantic fantasy onto this family and convinces herself of it is brilliant. And then Austin mm. takes mercy on her, showing she's not the only one. I think that's a fair assessment and a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, I do too. And I know my wife actually has a, a real soft spot for this one. I don't know. I, I didn't actually ask her how high it would rank among her favorites, but I think it would probably be pretty high up there. Cause I know that she, she really does have a, a soft spot for Northanger Abbey, which <laughs> I, for some of those very same reasons, I think. Nice. Anything else? I mean, again, I, we could go on for a long time, but anything else you want to say about Northanger Abbey? We'll, Just, we'll get back to it. I think when we're like talking about our rankings, cause then we'll maybe be explaining more of our, our particular feelings, but yeah, maybe I'll save it for that. Then I think that makes sense that I'll bring up. Cause there's some things about it that I think are, are not weaknesses, but maybe the reasons why I might not rank it quite as highly okay. that I'll, we can get into that a little later. I think that sounds good. All right. Sense and sensibility, the novel published in 1811, the first one she published in her lifetime. And it was published, um, you know, with no name, it was published anonymously. Uh, as were all of the ones that she published while she was alive. Northanger Abbey was, and Persuasion were the first ones that had her name on the cover page. And those only were published um, about six mo- five, six months after she died. Uh, but Sense and Sensibility, this story of uh, of a family, but really, you know, kind of in a way, two sisters, Eleanor mm-hmm. and Marianne Dashwood. Uh, I, I adore I adore Sense and Sensibility. Um I love the story of the the loves and the disappointments and the growth and it's it's beginning is one of my favorites of any Austin novel where you meet the you know the brother John Dashwood as he attempts to uh be generous with his his stepmom and his half sisters because he's the one who's who's inherited where they've been living uh from their father who has just died and he's promised to take care of them, but steadily his wife cuts it all away. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That part is so funny, but also so painful. Like Austin is so good at these characters, like the wife where 
you just oh, instantly well, like you, I don't know. Yeah, are you gonna read it? Yeah, I've got some parts here. I've got some parts, and I just this is Mr. John Dashwood. He was not an ill-disposed young man, unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish is to be ill-disposed. <laughs> but in, he was in general well-respected, for he conducted himself with propriety in the charge of his ordinary duties. And then here's where we kind of meet his his wife. Had he married a more amiable woman, he might have been, or he might have been made still more respectable than he was. He might even have been made amiable himself. For he was very young when he married and very fond of his wife. Um, but, you know, that that's him. And mm-hmm. this way she keeps on cutting him away to like, he's going to be generous. He's going to give them money and quite a bit of it. But surely that's not what your father wanted. You know, he doesn't expect you to to get disinherit your own children for, for them. And he just, oh, that's right. He probably meant half that. And she steadily um, talks him down um, from all of that to where he finally thinks, well, maybe I'll I'll give just an annuity then. Certainly not. Um, but if if you observe, people always live forever when there is an annuity to be paid them. <laughs> She's just horrible mm-hmm. in so many ways. But it's By so the end, he's funny. Like, Twenty bucks here, you know. It's, yeah. yeah. The part. Yeah. Speaking of the adaptations, we just recently watched the Emma Thompson version, and they do mm-hmm. a really nice job of that <laughs> scene in particular, where that's kind of kicks off the whole movie and, and the two actors do a really great job of, of that where it just steadily wearing him down and you can tell he's trying to do the right thing but he's also just so i don't know if he's afraid or just so easily coerced by his wife that yeah yeah and he's like yeah okay whatever i mean clearly he doesn't really want to be generous he he's he's very persuadable um mm-hmm. but yeah yeah his wife uh, until it's it isn't even just that she has taken away anything he might give to them, but she then wants to move and take the house immediately as well. And so there's that all, you know, the first part of this novel is them all in this house with the, the mom and the three daughters um, being, you know, getting ready to, to leave and trying to figure out where can we live now that we can afford. And mm-hmm. it, it's, that's where we we recognize that Eleanor, the oldest daughter is, is the one who has the caution of we cannot afford these homes. We cannot mm-hmm. on this income. Whereas the mom, who's a little bit more like Marianne, uh, just kind of wants to go for it. You know, how many servants can we fit here? And how right. where can the stables be to where it's just like, no, that, that none of that is even an option. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very disappointed by all that. Yeah. And that's a theme that keeps coming up in later novels. It's so fascinating that it comes up in different ways, but... <clears throat> the reality of what you can afford versus this persona or this, you know, how you want to be seen in society and in the different ways that different characters react or, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think that's so interesting. You know, obviously money plays such a huge Mm -hmm. role and status within all of her novels. And to see, I think that's one of the most interesting ways, obviously love is, is the main way that she kind of shows the different actions and reactions of characters, but just that whole idea of, somebody gets a fortune, somebody loses a fortune, somebody gains a house, somebody loses a house. And just the way that those ups and downs kind of bring out the different sides of characters is fascinating. How the women in particular, just at the mercy of of Uh, all of this, you mm -hmm. know, that that's part of what the, the cruelest act in maybe any of her works is in Northanger Abbey to me when, um, you know, the, the dad, um, General Tilney, just 
kicks Catherine out of their home mm. just on the spot because he's just found out that while he's been very nice to her because he thinks she has money, he finds out that really she doesn't. And so he just, you know, on the spot, someone he's been very polite to and solicitous to who has done nothing wrong herself, yep. um, you know, just kicked out and her prospects are gone. And he basically just puts her on the equivalent of the the city bus and sends mm-hmm. her off. You know, it's it's pretty relatively dangerous and and a very rough ride and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just at the whims of, of so often the women are at the whims rather through the way that inheritance inherent inheritances are passed down or mm-hmm. a factor She's, like you just mentioned. It's a business proposition. You know, mm-hmm. she is an asset um, for one of his sons, and and he sees her as that, and and might could be kind to her just because he feels it's the proper thing to do, but there's no heart in it. You know, he is a, it's a business. And when she has shown herself to be of no worth, she is gone. And similar with, with these three daughters um, in Sense and Sensibility, again, um, Margaret is, is very young. She's what, 12 or 13, 12, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, she she kind of pops in now and then in the book. Sometimes I'm like, did Jane Austen forget about her? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But it's about Eleanor and Marianne who, you know, they've just been essentially disinherited to an extent because mm-hmm. their mom had no son. And so they are they are kicked out. Their only prospect is whether they can find somebody um, who will marry them uh, who's already wealthy. And those stories play a, play a big role here. And indeed, the parents of these prospective suitors, you know, Edward, the the the, the kind of the the hero of this book, uh, who is courting Eleanor, his mom disinherits him because of his choices in in a match. Mm-hmm. And it turns out not to be Eleanor at first. You know, that's kind of a fun little story with Lucy Steele and such. Um, but she disinherits him, uh, literally. And, you know, there's some fun fun things there that go on. And, you know, he does end up, of course, with Eleanor. And everything's okay in the end because, you know, his mom relents. Um, but that's that's a big a big deal. And these 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 women are are kind of thrown about and their passions and their loves. I mean, that's what happens with Marianne too. I mean, Willoughby is so charming, mm-hmm. but he marries for money instead. And I just love that he's, I love the way that she deals with him at the end, you know, not because I think he deserves to be like just absolutely miserable, right? but because he doesn't even know, no one can know if in my mind, whether he really loved Marianne or not or if he was just playing with her. But at the end, he thinks he did deeply and that that would have been a better life because he's so mm-hmm. miserable with his money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. No, when I was thinking back and reading more about this, like it's funny how like, different characters on different readings are the ones that you really get attached to or focus on. And I think the first time, first few times I read through this book, Marianne Dashwood just kind of drove me nuts, you know, <laughs> justifiably. Um, but this time I felt more of like a soft spot for yeah, her. And, me and too. I really, she was actually one of, when I was looking back through it and thinking about it this time, I think she's one that actually stood out to me of just, I don't know, her spontaneity and, and her excessiveness was actually kind of endearing to me this time. I mean, it's, of course she's still frustrating, but like, it's that whole idea of, who you think is, is the perfect person in the world for you versus what you really, what would be best for you in the long run and what would mean true happiness. And just 
the back and forth with Colonel Brandon, who's not, you know, <laughs> quite as appealing or not nearly as appealing, at least on the surface as, as Willoughby. And just the way that that whole thing plays out, I really enjoyed that aspect of it this time. And mm-hmm. not, not that Marianne didn't still drive me nuts, but um, it's just always funny because in her, in Jane Austen's books, often there are those wiser characters who usually do still have plenty of flaws, but then there's also the, the flighty impulsive characters and, you know, I don't know. It's just the way those two play off of each other um, is, I, is always so fun. I still find her so lovable, though. Mm-hmm. She is frustrating. In fact, when I was reading this is I don't know if I should share this or not. But when I was reading this one to my wife earlier this year, my wife is like, oh, Marianne is so difficult. I can't imagine living with her. You know how she's she's so, you know, all these things. And to me, I'll, I'll be on. She's one of the most lively characters in mm-hmm. this novel to me because of all of that. She's she's young and she's learning and she's very articulate and very forthright in her feelings, um, which can get her into trouble. But is also like, wow, there's this is a powerful person. If 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 you know, anyway, I just I do love it. Oh yeah. Um, but I was telling my wife, you you can't you can't say all that because when I read Marianne the person that I see is your sister. <laughs> my, my wife's older sister is just Marianne to me to a team. Mm-hmm. And my wife goes, Oh, I'm going to have to give her a call. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call her Uh-oh. now. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't, you cannot call someone up and say, Hey, Trevor just uh, was, we were just talking, we're reading sense and sensibility. And he said, you're just like Marianne. I'm like, you can't, you cannot say this. This is between you and me. And she yeah. goes, I'll bet I'm going to do this in a different way. And so she calls and she goes, Hey, what Jane Austen character do you think you are most like, you know, to her sister? And her sister goes, Oh, probably Marianne. (laughs) (laughs) So she knows it, you know, she knows it, she owns it. And I thought, Oh, that's, that's funny. And, and, you know, again, I just, I, I, I love, I do love Marianne and the, just the, I feel bad for her because she's so certain of her love and I believe she would have always been faithful to someone like Willoughby had he loved her and, and, you know, married her. I really believe that. Um, but who knows, of course, you know, with these, these characters, they, there's always, always other troubles that would come along um, to mm-hmm. beset them. Um, but I think that she would have, would have done it. And just the wake up that she gets in this book is pretty harsh. You know, yeah. um, it's, it's a very, it's a very sad one to me. But one that makes me just all the more, um, you know, admire admire her because of how she she does get through it and Mm -hmm. and accept that she was wrong in the past and learns to love someone that she first thought could never love this boring, you know, person. He doesn't he doesn't love deep enough. You know, Mm -hmm. she's very judgmental. (laughs) Yeah, she is. But I really like that, too. Like you said, it's it's kind of where you start to get into some of the nuance that Jane Austen is so good at with these Mm -hmm. characters where just because somebody is a strong person, I mean, there's a lot to be admired in being a strong person, but that can also lead to all kinds of what could be perceived as faults and and lead to all kinds of other issues. I mean, you know, if you talk about a strong woman like Marianne, I mean, when you hear strong woman, it seems like that would be a hundred percent a positive thing, but I like that whether it's the men or the women, you know, different ages, like they all have these strengths and things, but she doesn't shy away from like there's repercussions of being a strong personality or for feeling this strongly. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, So talking about uh, feedback, then when I did the poll, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to spoil it just a little bit. Sense and Sensibility didn't didn't do super well with uh, with folks. Um, and Simon Thomas, who will be joining us, you know, very soon. I'm excited mm-hmm. about that. Simon, we'll see you. Uh, but he he didn't vote for it, so you know he's kind of part of the problem. But <laughs> but he did say feeling sorry for Sense and Sensibility, which is a close second for me. Some mm-hmm. of the funniest lines in all of her oeuvre, which I agree with. I I do think that. I, that this one I could go through and, and highlight so many of these passages between mother and daughters and, and the, mm-hmm. the two sisters. And, you know, I love Margaret. I think she's so funny. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a, a blast and, and really well done comedy in the midst of some pretty tragic things and mm-hmm. close, close death, you know, close encounters with, uh, with death, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely one that, I'm anxious to kind of see where it stacks up in, in yours. Um, but and adaptations, you kind of, you did mention the 1995 Ang Lee, um, mm-hmm. uh, Emma Thompson uh, version, which I also love. I think it's my favorite. Um, but I also really like the, you know, let's get back to Andrew Davies, the, the series from 2007. I don't know if you've seen that. It was, a, you know, again, one of these made for, uh, for British television. Um, I think it's, three episodes might only be two but it's you know it's it's a good one as well and it's a little bit different we we watched both of them this year Mm. Uh, again we'd seen them both but we watched both of them again in the last month or so really fun to see them both in in close proximity to one another yeah no i haven't seen that one but i definitely plan to spend some time going through some of these adaptations that i haven't watched before um but yeah when i rewatched the emma thompson one i was really you know, I, I did. It's just a, so well done. And and to some degree, some of the subtlety just like often happens with a movie. Some of the subtlety of the characters is taken out a little bit. I think there's been some criticism or maybe not criticism, but just acknowledgement that the screenplay kind of smooths the edges of the two male characters and makes it a little more black and white than it is in the books between Willoughby and Colonel Brandon, you know, things like that. But yeah. um, they all do such a good job. You know, just the the casting was so well done. And, you know, you get the... Yeah. The stuttering, uh, stuttering um, Hugh Grant and, you know, all those things. It's just <laughs> when they did a really nice job with it. One of my favorite parts, again, in all of these is when Margaret jabs him in the gut when <laughs> while Eleanor is watching out there and he kind of turns and waves to Eleanor and Margaret just stabs him in the gut because they're playing swords with sticks. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is so fun. Um, and, you know, I think Willoughby is so is well cast and you can see the charm in him. Mm-hmm. Um and you can see why she would be much more attracted to him than to Snape, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so as much as as much as I I do love Alan Rickman and love his you know Colonel Brandon, uh, yeah, you know I'd probably also be like, okay, I'll, right. I'll deal with Willoughby for a while. <laughs> exactly. Well, and Kate Winslet does such a great job. She with, is. You know, she it. just yeah, she encapsulates that character so well, and I really like. Um, towards the end where they show the scenes where, you know, Alan Rickman is out there reading poetry to her as she kind of recovers from her emotional and physical distress after the whole Willoughby incident and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just some nice sweetness to that. And, and it's very quiet and not overstated, but it's just kind of ties into that whole idea of this was not the flashy romance she thought she would have, but you can start to see the the seeds being planted for a much probably healthier long-term relationship. Well, Paul, are you ready to move on to another big one? I think we better, yep. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice, 1813. 
maybe I'll start with some of the, the, the feedback here. This one was Simon Thomas's favorite. And he says, it has my favorite characters, the best lines, and plotting that thriller writers would kill for. Mm. And um, then there's also Juliana Aldis who said, they're also great, but I have to say Pride and Prejudice because it was my first. Mm. It was my first too. Um, and then uh, Joe Chopra McGowan said, Pride and Prejudice for Mrs. Bennett and her poor nerves. <laughs> <laughs> the marvelous BBC adaptation and laugh out loud dangers of getting wet in the rain, though, of course, Sense and Sensibility does that even better. <laughs> mm. um, yes, this this is, uh, you know, justly famous and a classic and, and beloved. And... Uh, yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you go on this one. I think I I've jumped in on each one of these and oh, probably no. left you going. Wait, but I have things to do. Oh, you're doing a great job. Um, I mean, for this one, I think yeah, it's hard to argue that these aren't some of the very strongest characters in all of Jane Austen. I mean, Elizabeth is probably the consummate heroine or mm-hmm. or leading lady of of Jane Austen, or at least she encapsulates so much of what you know I love about her. And she. Is pro- she may be uh, to me? She's Austin's most vibrant character, mm-hmm. but she's one of the best in all of books for me. Oh, I, all of books, yeah. yeah. I can't, I can't think of another character off the top of my head right now. I'd like to try this, but who is so alive mm-hmm. and and oh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I love her. Just you know, in that day and age, the way she'll just take off across the country walking and just you know, she's just it's it's <laughs> raining or whatever, and she just goes for it and. Um, I like the way she manages her family and, and, you know, (laughs) I love every member of that family so much there. It's just, you know, so difficult and painful to, to, to read, but I love the way that (laughs) both her, I guess, and her older sister both kind of do a good job of, of managing their parents who both have so many, so many faults and, and warts, you know, but yeah. (laughs) Well, while you're on that, one of the passages that I highlighted to read, I think shows, Lizzie's wit and her articulate nature, her somewhat biting criticism and her problems with her family. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking here. Uh, she, she's talking with, with Jane, her older sister and <laughs> talking about Jane, your, your sweetness and disinterestedness, disinterestedness are really angelic. I do not know what to say to you. I feel as if I have never done you justice or loved you as you deserve. And then, um, Jane, you know, kind of give returns some of the praise. Mm-hmm. And this is what Elizabeth says. Nay, said Elizabeth, this is not fair. You wish to think all the world respectable and are hurt if I speak ill of anybody. I only want you, I only want to think you perfect and you set yourself against it. Do not be afraid of my running into any excess or of my encroaching on your privilege of universal goodwill. You need not. And then this is the part. There are few people whom I really love and still fewer fewer of whom I think well. <laughs> I just uh, like imagining her family. I love them. I don't think well of them. <laughs> no, exactly. There's another line where her family is embarrassing themselves at some public event, and it says, To Elizabeth it appeared that had her family made an agreement to expose themselves as much as they could during the evening, it would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success. <laughs> and I, I just love that. She's like, if you wanted to do a a better job of uh, humiliating all of us. I don't think you could. So, <laughs> And just making sport, you know, for the neighbors, you know, I, I love mm-hmm. that, that line and that stuff. It's, it's so good. It's so, 
the, this and the love story I think is so good as well. And the, the other characters, the side characters, you know, one of my other favorites is Caroline Bingley, who's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty awful of a person, mm-hmm. but she spends quite a bit of time with, with Lizzie. Um, you know, they're sitting there together. They have, they have to sit there and do something and they're all in the, in the drawing room and Mr. Darcy's sitting there reading and Lizzie's reading and, and um, Caroline is also reading. And, and this is what Caroline says. After a yawn, how pleasant it is to spend an evening in this way. I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. When I have a house of my own, I shall be miserable if I have not an excellent library. No one made any reply. She then yawned again, threw aside her book, and cast her eyes around the room in quest of some amusement. <laughs> Just that that hypocritical, I'm going to try and impress Darcy and say oh, yeah. all these lofty things. But she hates it. You know, she's exceptionally bored reading where everyone else is reading. And I and love she... that that line is always, you know, on like people's placards and people's signs. And it's from Caroline Bingley. <laughs> I know. And how she wants to get up and take another turn, you know, around the room so that Darcy can admire them and everything. Like she's, she's hilarious. Okay. I have another side character who is, I don't know, favorite might not be the right word, but um, another thing I like about this book is it's got to have two of the absolute worst proposals, marriage proposals in <laughs> all of literature. And the, the one that I, I love and hate is uh, from, you, uh, you can probably guess who this is. Mr. Says, Collins. Mr. Collins. Yes. <laughs> he says, my reasons for marrying are first that I think it is a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstance like myself to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I'm convinced it would add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honor of calling patroness. Twice has she condescended to give me her opinion, unasked too, on this subject. And it was but the very (laughs) Saturday night before I left Hunsford, between our pools at Quadrille, while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mr. Berg's footstool, that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly, choose a gentlewoman for my sake, and for your own. Let her be an active, useful sort of person, not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. And I just love, you know, it goes on and on, and I could probably pick out a few more parts, but that proposal, it's like basically status, and because Lady Catherine de Bourgh said he mm-hmm. should. <laughs> it's a duty, for, mm-hmm. but, but I've selected you, Elizabeth. I have selected you. Mm-hmm. you know, he's so... He's so awful. And, you he know, is. to be honest, uh, Mr. Darcy's proposal, like you said, was some of the two of the worst. I'm assuming the other one is that mm-hmm. one. Yep. Um, it's awful. He is, he's, he's kind of awful. You oh, know, yeah. there's a good reason that Lizzie does not like him um, yeah. because he, he sees it as a flaw in his own character that he even wants to marry her, but he, he loves her. And it's like, well, you don't, how on earth, what, what does that yeah. even mean? Um, but it, it is kind of crazy how, someone can be like him and say the things he does and and you still end up admiring and loving their relationship i think because you see it through lizzie's perspective and her capacity to love and 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 have that joy is is wonderful yeah otherwise he's pretty awful (laughs) he is well that's one of those amazing things like you said where through what probably at least two-thirds of that book you you hate him or at least not hate him but i mean you can just see like his faults and all of his flaws 
and the way that she is able through Lizzie's perspective, but also through Lizzie, Lizzie's un- unwillingness to, you know, give in to some of these, mm-hmm. you know, societal pressures and things like that. You you start to come around, and the way that they kind of sand off each other's rough edges, I think, is is actually really well done. And one of the things do, I love so much about that book. Do you think he's deserving? I mean, part of the thing that that I think is interesting is he tells her of his complaints, and they're they are exactly what she was concerned about. He does not respect her family. He does mm-hmm. think they're a bunch of fools. He does want the money. He does recognize that she is not a good match for him. And it's her who kind of goes, "Oh, well, now that I can see it from his perspective, he's right, and I'm, he's justified." And it's like, well, he still has all of those same feelings. He just also has some other good ones. And and you do, you know, you end up you end up caring for for him, even though. I'm I'm just not a hundred percent sure he's he's deserving of Lizzie. <laughs> no, I think you're right, but I, I don't know. As I was rereading through these books, that's actually one of the things I was gonna bring up that I appreciate so much is there's some gray areas in, in almost mm. every character and on almost every relationship where it's not you know, these get kind of stereotyped as like fairy tales or, you know, they always end with a wedding and things like that. And and some of that is true. But I really think there's a lot of, of, I don't know, darkness might be too strong of a word, but it shows like the flaws of humanity and, you know, not Mm -hmm. all of these relationships are perfect by any means. And something that I actually kind of appreciate is, is that messiness. And there's no guarantee these are all going to work out because there are many other older couples in these Mm. books who probably have had similar stories that could be told about them. Some of them are happy and some of them are not. And it's just the, the fun of all of this. Um, let, let's talk about the adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. There, there are, uh, uh, you know, there are many. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a great adaptation of the book, but my wife introduced me to the 1940 adaptation with Laurence Olivier, oh. and it is a lot of fun. It's <laughs> very much, you know, as if they took some of the plot lines and then tried to make make it look like Gone with the Wind, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it is, it is a lot of fun. I, I liked it so much more than I thought that I would. Um, again, not maybe the best adaptation, but but definitely one that I I would recommend as a as a fun as a fun movie, especially mm-hmm. as someone who loves Pride and Prejudice. Um, there's these kind of side ones. There's what's what's the what's the one from India, the Bollywood Bri- one? Is it Bride, Bride and, Prejudice? and Prejudice? Yeah, yeah, I like that one. It's just kind of fun, mm-hmm. you know. There's so many of these plot lines, um, but when you get to actual adaptations. You know, I think the two that stand out are the 1995 and the 2005 um, mm-hmm. version, the 1995 longer one, and then the 2005 Kira Knightley cinematic, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful looking uh, right. one for sure. I'll, I'll just say I can credit the 1995 one for starting this whole thing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my my first, you know, kind of twinges of, of love <laughs> yeah. for Jane Austen and for these stories. And I think that it is an absolute masterpiece. I love the, the casting. I love the, 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 the way that they play it. And I was really excited in 2005 to go and see the Kira Knightley version with my wife. And we both kind of walked out of that thinking that was just a bunch of pretty pictures and a yep. kind of a gross, I know people love it. I think it's silly. There's there's like some guy who's always talking about how much better it is than the 1995 version. I'm like, man, I just, I do not agree. I think no. that they miss they miss the mark so often. Having Lady Catherine de Bourgh visit in the in the nighttime, 
mm-hmm. you know, to, to tell Lizzie she cannot marry Mr. Darcy is just preposterous for the time mm-hmm. and, and silly and completely misses it, even though it's the great Judy Dench playing it. Right. And to me, it was just a bunch of, hey, let's put the camera here so that it gets this lighting mm-hmm. and is so much more of that. I just, I, I do not like it. I do not no. like it much at all, but I love in fact, I could go watch it right now and spend the whole day watching it. The the nineteen ninety five uh, BBC version. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually mirror your your feelings very strongly on both of those. I was very not impressed by the two thousand five version. Like you said, it's beautiful, but that's about all you can say for it, in my opinion. It doesn't do the the work of. It doesn't seem to me to really respect the core material, which I know that that's not always what something starts out to do. And, and, and adaptations can mm-hmm. change and do things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it just, yeah, not successful in my, in my opinion, but yeah, 1995 it's, yeah, I don't know it, of all the adaptations of all the books to me, this one is on a pinnacle all by itself. I love everything about it. Like you said, the, the casting, I mean, Jennifer Ely does such a wonderful mm-hmm. job as Elizabeth and, of course, Colin Firth does such a great job. It's Darcy and his his yeah. falling in the lake, you know, is a his thrilled hearts across America. I think and Britain. Yes. So, um, I remember speaking of Professor Ray. I don't think I'll probably bring this up. When I ch- <laughs> chat with her. She was so funny during that class. She would show us little snippets of of some of the different adaptations, and especially this one. In this part, she was so funny. She she paused that set, that scene and she would like run it back and like it was really funny. She she really brought a lot of the humor and joy into the humanity of like yes, they're wearing period pieces and this all took place hundreds of years ago, but there's still like fun and passion mm-hmm. and sexiness and all these things about it that you know I really appreciated her kind of showing us that. So, but yeah, that we've watched that one probably four or five times over the years, and like you said, I could I could go turn it on and watch it right now. I love it. And and your family, are they, are they healthy? Mm. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Where he's sitting there sopping wet. Ask her again. I mean, it is. It's so well played out. Um, I I love it. Well, and her mom in that one, Mrs. Bennett, is so good. <laughs> I mean, everybody is, but I just love her. Yeah, like like they said, her nerves and the way she's just so over the top and lots of door slamming and fans going and everything else. It's the, the, Mr. Collins too. Oh mm. man. <laughs> sitting there eating dinner while trying to you know talk and all oh man it is it is a blast it is all right well let's take a little bit of a break from from our discussion of the books so that we can meet professor ray now paul you're going to be doing this one on your own i actually can't make the time so you'll be talking with professor ray i when we come back will not have had the benefit of knowing that neither will you we're going to we're going to you know keep recording our mm-hmm. you know and get onto Mansfield Park so we I don't know how it'll how it'll all line up but I am excited to hear what she has to say I, I you shared with me an interview that she did where she was talking about music in Jane Austen's works and I thought that it was delightful so mm-hmm. I'm excited for you to have that opportunity to reconnect with someone that I think you have shown you admire a great deal and and credit with a lot of your joy in this stuff yeah and I'm excited to hear how that conversation goes. But why don't you introduce for, for listeners who Professor Ray is and, and tell us a little bit about, about who they're going to be hearing from. Yeah, so Professor Joan Klingel Ray, she is, as you said, just one of the founding reasons You know that I, I credit her with my love of Jane Austen, but I also credit her in many ways for just my growing love of literature and classics around this period of my life. And for some of those reasons I've already talked about, she just injected so much life and passion, but she also showed 
a little extra work to understand what's going on and, and spend some time just learning about a society, how much that can just open up these books and make you appreciate all the subtleties and things that are going on. So I'll just give a really quick bio just to give people some idea of about her. Um, so she earned her AM and PhD degrees in English at Brown University through Brown's University Fellowship. And then she came to the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, which is where I met her. She actually started there in 1978 as a tenure track assistant professor, and she taught there for over 30 years before she retired in 2012 as a professor emerita of English. And then she has some really interesting Jane Austen um, facts about her. So she has served on the board of trustees of Chotton House Library for the study of early women writers in Hampshire, England, which is located on the estate that once belonged to Jane Austen's brother, Edward Austen Knight. And then she's also obviously an enthusiastic fan of Jane Austen. She was actually the former president of the Jane Austen Society of North America. So she has all kinds of credentials mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the passion. And she also wrote another book that's kind of interesting. If people want to check it out, it's called Jane Austen for Dummies. And so if there's mm -hmm. somebody who wants to go in and kind of learn some of these backgrounds in the society and what does all this mean, you know, what is a barouche and all these different things, that would be a great way to do it. I, I think it's for somebody who wants to spend a little extra time. It's amazing how much just knowing those types of things can can help. So, yeah. So now she's retired and she still enjoys sharing her love, you know, of Jane Austen. I know that she, like you said, she's been doing lots of interviews and she'll speak around Colorado Springs in the Denver area all about Jane Austen. So not only is she a scholar, she's a fan, and that really comes through. And I can't wait to talk to her. That's exciting. Well, here we go. I will. I will back off and let you guys get to it. Professor Ray, I want to thank you so much for joining me. When uh, Trevor and I first talked about doing a Jane Austen episode, I have to admit you were the first person that came to mind for me because you had such a huge impact on my love for Jane Austen back 20 years ago when I took your semester-long seminars. You know, just your passion and your knowledge for, for Jane Austen were so infectious, and it really did build a lifelong love of, of her work for both me and my wife. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Paul, for inviting me. I am always delighted to talk about Jane Austen, whose writing skills I respect so much. Yeah, she's so amazing. Well, I mean, I thought I would just start generally speaking, you know, Give me your background with Jane Austen. How did you first come across her and what kind of started to build up your love for her in the first place? Okay. Well, you know, I had read Jane, I had read Pride and Prejudice as a teenager. Let me add right now, I think you appreciate Jane Austen more the older you get. But, and of course I read Jane Austen in graduate school because I had a two semester academic year long course on the 18th century British novel that started with Daniel Defoe and ended with Jane Austen. And Jane Austen 
has been described by the late great Ian Watt, who was uh, an Austin scholar, a scholar of the 18th century novel at Stanford University. He had written a book that all of us English PhD candidates read in graduate school called The Rise of the Novel. And what he presents in that book is that what Jane Austen did for this new form of fiction, appropriately called novel, new, is to bring together what her predecessor Samuel Richardson did. His novels had titles like Pamela and Clarissa, which certainly suggests he's interested in the female mind. And Henry Fielding, whose novels Joseph Andrews and Tom Jones are social satires, and she brought them together. And it culminated in, for us, not, not pushing it too much, you know, looking at metafiction today, but she really developed the modern novel. As, as we are familiar with it through the Victorian period in early 20th century. Yeah. So my dissertation was not on Jane Austen. It was on Dr. Johnson's Shakespeare edition. But when my husband was ill, he had cancer. I had a sabbatical. And of course, I wasn't going to go to England to do research on Dr. Johnson. I decided I would stay home, of course, and uh, be here for his chemotherapy, et cetera. And, but when you have a sabbatical, you have to have a project because the sabbatical at the University of, Co of Colorado was uh, one semester off at full pay, you know, at, at, at your salary. So, you know, you're not supposed to like paint your house or something or redo <laughs> your garden, Paul. You know, so I live not far from Colorado College and so I decided, remembering what Ian Watts said, and this was in 1991, prior to the Colin Firth, Jennifer Ely, wet shirt movie coming out of the pond <laughs> for Colin Firth. Right. I decided I would do Jane Austen because we didn't have anyone teaching Jane Austen. I always ended my 18th century British novel course with a novel by Jane Austen, but I thought I'm going to do a senior seminar on Jane Austen. And I wrote a paper on Jane Austen, on um, Fanny Price, in fact, from Mansfield Park, mm. in which I pointed out, uh, Fanny Price always had bad press. You know, even Ian Watt and others said, you know, Fanny and, and Edward Ferrars are, are Ed, Edmund, excuse me, Ed, Edmund Bertrand, are the last people you'd want to have supper with. They're so boring. <laughs> but I really felt we could have uh, a better understanding of Fanny Price if we realized she was a subject of abuse. Mm. Verbal, from Aunt Norris, always telling her, you will always be lowest and last. Physical, she has a little bedroom in the attic that is too small for a fire. When she gets the old schoolroom, Aunt Norris orders the servants, never put a fire in there. So Fanny can only use it when she is uh, in, in the sunshine. And she, you know, is uh, made fun of by her cousins, M Mariah and Julia Bertram. Mm -hmm. So I sent this paper off to the Jane Austen Society and it was accepted. 
And that moved me into Jane Austen. And then when the, you know, the sabbatical was over, I came back and taught a Jane Austen course and a senior seminar. And it was so popular to the extent that, you know, we had to move into bigger rooms yeah. uh, because I always accepted all, all the students who wanted to take it. So yeah. that's really how I got in to Jane Austen. May no. I add something though, Paul? I listened Absolutely. to your podcast on works of comfort in mm-hmm. literature. And a lot of people read Jane Austen for comfort, and one of you mentioned that and and foreshadowed this interview. But in World War One, soldiers who had what we now call post-traumatic stress syndrome, but which in World War One was called shell shock, were told to read Jane Austen mm. because she was so soothing. Mm-hmm. It was like merry old England, you know, and her novels are far from merry old England, but, you know, you're, you're fighting for girls like Elizabeth Bennet and Catherine Morland and Marianne Dashwood. So she was certainly viewed as a, a writer who comforted when Winston Churchill was prime minister and had pneumonia. He asked people to read Jane Austen to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And that's kind of ties into something I wanted to ask you, which is what is it about her that continues to work so well for today's readers? You know, it would be easy to kind of put her up in this pedestal and kind of say that she does this. Yeah. And that was of its time and its parlor and its manners and it's worrying about money and love and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But despite that, or maybe partially because of that, um, it continues to resonate. You, you mentioned you couldn't even, you know, you didn't, you, you wouldn't turn people away and the rooms were filled with yes. young, young college students, you yes. know, hundreds of years later. What do you think it is that she offers today's readers that continues yeah. to resonate? And, and I would add, I had men and women in the class, you know, mm-hmm. you're in the class, Gail, mm-hmm. your wife was in the class. I had a, a, a Marine veteran with a, in, in a, in a, uh, one semester. That was not the semester when you and Gail were in the class, but he had like a tattoo on his arm that said Semper Fi. Mm-hmm. You know, he was this real Marine type, but he loved Jane Austen. Why is Jane Austen so long lasting? In the 19th century, in the Victorian period, both Lord Macaulay and I think it was George Lewis called Jane Austen the Shakespeare of the novel. Hmm. And Dr. Johnson, my dissertation person, said Shakespeare was a poet of nature, and by that he meant human nature. Human nature is always the same. I mean, go back to Cain and Abel. There is jealousy. Mm -hmm. And Jane Austen does the same thing. Human nature never changes. So you have Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. Nowadays, she'd be at Columbia University Law School or Harvard Law School. She is so smart. She is so quick. Even her father says, there is something more of quickness in Lizzie than in her other sisters. But girls couldn't go to school, let alone college in those days. But she gets her intelligence out in her conversation with Darcy. And 
again, human nature. You look at Fanny Price in Mansfield Park. She is sexually jealous of Mary Crawford, who is getting the attention of Edmund Bertram, whom Fanny had always thought of as a kind of brother figure, you know, her very nice cousin. But as she gets older and her hormones are starting to churn, churn mm -hmm. she is starting to feel amorous towards him. And when she sees Edmund paying more attention to Mary Crawford, the attractive Mary Crawford, and there's a great line in Mansfield Park, which reminds, which reminds us what a great writer Jane Austen is. Edmund had purchased a horse for Fanny for exercise. And then he lets Mary Crawford ride the horse. You may remember this scene, mm -hmm. Paul. And it's supposed to be Fanny's time to ride the horse with Edmund. And Fanny is standing there seeing Edmund and Mary in the distance. His head moved closer to Mary's. He touched her hand. The mind provided what the eye could not see. I mean, how many high school senior girls are jealous because the guy they like is paying attention to another girl mm -hmm. in the school? This is exactly what Fanny is going through. Human nature never never changes. That's why it's called human nature. So I think that is why Jane Austen stands the test of time. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and in the 19th century, it was mainly male critics who praised Jane Austen for this grasp of human nature. There's a wonderful little anecdote about her that a person who knew her mentioned about her. This person's father rented Jane Austen's brother's mansion, Chawton House. And it was just a walk up from the Chawton Cottage where after 1809, Jane and her sister Cassandra and mother lived. It's now the Chawton House Library. And this woman said, she was about 20 years younger than Jane Austen. She said, I remember Jane Austen. She didn't partake that much in conversation, but she was always looking around at the other people around the supper table as if getting ideas about human personalities for those novels, which at that time we didn't know she was writing. Hmm. Because she, she published all of her non novels anonymously, mm -hmm. which was appropriate for a lady. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I, I don't know. Don't you think that sometimes, I think she's getting more and more credit for, I don't know if subversive is too strong of a word, but she has some very powerful, you know, whether it's feminism, whether it's societal criticisms, things like that, that I don't know for a while, maybe if that was acknowledged as much as it has been, you know, I think that continues to be one of the things that resonates with people is just how much is going on underneath the surface that you don't see at a first glance. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Back in the late 19th century, a female reader 
spoke about the fine vein of feminine cynicism in Austin's work. And then that was forgotten for many years. Mm. And it was just gentle Jane. Right. And the, Jane, the writer of, Jane Austen, the writer of courtship mm-hmm. novels. But certainly, um, she is a satirist, as Henry Fielding was. Mm-hmm. And her satire is very subtle. I'll give you an example. In Persuasion, her last completed novel, which she did not live to see printed, she has two characters from the nobility. The Dowager Viscountess Dalrymple, and a, a Dowager is the wife of uh, the widow of of a Viscount or a Baron, so she is a Dowager, and her daughter, the Honorable Miss Carteret. Jane Austen gives them no direct speech, mm-hmm. implying that even though they have noble blood running through their veins, they have nothing worthwhile to say or for us to read. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, you know, this is a broad question, but I would love to just hear, you know, as you're reading these and you keep coming back to them and getting joy, you know, one thing I've noticed, you touched on it earlier, as you get older and come back to them and revisit them, different things stand out to you, Mm -hmm. you know, different characters rise to the surface or you notice things that you hadn't noticed before. Just generally speaking, what are some of your favorite passages or characters and how have they kind of evolved or changed over time or how, you know, have you you changed the way you've looked at them? Well, I, especially after I retired, I swore I would never give another Jane Austen talk. And then I was asked, about two years after I retired, it was actually, yeah, a year a year after I retired, to give a talk at a Jane Austen Society event in front of 7,000 listeners, wow. uh, a conference about Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, I've always loved Elizabeth Bennet. Who doesn't love Elizabeth? Darcy loves Elizabeth Bennet. But what I realized was that Darcy... And and I didn't realize this when I was teaching you this. Darcy is always trying to explain himself to her, and she's always pushing him away. And I had not realized that until probably my 50th reading of the book. Mm-hmm. That is how subtle she mm-hmm. is. Some of one of my favorite passages is from Persuasion. Last week, I spoke at the celebration of life for Betty Ross. Betty Ross uh, is the widow of Murray Ross, who founded Theater Works, and she co-founded Theater Works with him. And we had been friends for 43 years. Mm-hmm. I was asked by her son to be one of the speakers. And Orion emailed me. And said, Joan, you're the closest thing we have to a preacher. I am not a minister. I'm not ordained, <laughs> but I do go to church. And he said, can you, we, we need a sermon from you. So I thought, well, Betty was an atheist. I'm not going to preach from the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. <laughs> but I, what I did tell the group uh, when I was at the memorial service, it was up at the Ent Center at UCCS. Mm-hmm. 
I said, I'm going to preach from the gospel, one of Jane, one of Betty Ross's favorite gospels, the gospel of Jane Austen, hmm. actually from Persuasion, volume two, I think it was chapter four, one of my favorite passages. Anne Elliot and Mr. Elliot are discussing what is good company. And Anne says, I think good company is the conversation of clever, well-informed people. Mr. Elliot says, I must correct you. That is not good company. That is the best. And I spoke how Betty was the best company. And I think that is so true. That is the best company. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot and you can, you can say no if you want to. But Trevor and I, during this episode, charged each other with trying to rank in the order of our favorites from least to greatest, her six major novels. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you would be willing to take a swing at? Do you have yeah, that in your yeah, mind? Yeah, I, I can do that. Um, And I can do it actually from a kind of academic point of view. Okay. Emma, her novel, Emma, which is the novel of my head, my, you know, when I was president of the Jane Austen Society of North America for six years, I was on many radio programs. I was on PBS. I was on local AM stations and they'd ask me, what is your favorite Austen novel? And I said, Emma is my favorite novel of my head and pride and prejudice of my heart. What makes Emma? one of the greatest novels in English literature, and I'm not the only academic to say this, is that it's a different book when you read it the second time. Because the first time reader really doesn't understand that Frank Churchill is there in Highbury because of Jane Fairfax. And when he has to stop by Jane Fairfax's aunt's house to borrow a pair of scissors i mean you know he's staying with captain and mrs weston his mother his father and stepmother mrs weston has scissors why does he have to borrow scissors (laughs) from jane fairfax's aunt and grandmother because he wants to see jane fairfax Mm -hmm. so i would rank emma at the top I would put second Mansfield Park. Oh, wow. Yes, Mansfield Park. Because what she does in Mansfield Park is fool the reader into thinking that Fanny Price is such a dull individual. But you have to remember, we are in Fanny Price's mind so much And we hear all about her petty little jealousies because she has no one else to listen to her, Mm. right? Her cousins don't talk to her. They talk at her. Mm -hmm. Edmund is now off with Mary Crawford. He was the one person who listened to her. And so we misunderstand her. And of course, at the end of the novel, Jane Austen calls her my fanny. I mean, that's a very possessive thing for an author to say. Then I would say uh, Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. Then I like, I think, Persuasion. Okay. Sense and Sensibility. 
And I heard, I think it was Trevor in uh, mentioning that he he tried to, he and his wife tried to read Sense and Sensibility, but, you know, too many long sentences. Also, too many Dashwoods in the beginning. So you get the <laughs> Dashwoods all. And there are too many Henrys. And, and you know, you just, you have to write. That's why I used to hand out. Maybe I didn't do that back when you and Gail were in the class. But in my later years, I'd hand out family trees. Right. I'm, maybe you actually received them from me. Because I, students needed to know who was who in right. the house. And finally, mm-hmm. Northanger Abbey. Which is actually her reworking of a book that she wrote much earlier. And in that novel, she is very overt in defending the novel form because novels, you know, in Jane Austen's youth were viewed as kind of dangerous reading. Hmm. Like Marianne Dashwood reads too many novels of sensibility. So she's too emotional. Right. Um, and, And then she tried to parody the Gothic novel of Anne Radcliffe, The Mysteries of Udolpho, which she does very well, but it's really with Sense and Sensibility that she starts on her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so that would be the rank order. No, I'm, thank you. I appreciate you doing that. It's so interesting because have you discovered over the years that there has been some shifting in your favorites? Because Trevor and I were talking a little earlier and we we noticed even ones that in our head we thought might be ranking a little higher when we went back and reread them, they might move down a little and another one might shift up. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. I mean, you've spent so much time thinking about it. Maybe now you have a pretty good idea, but for us, it was a matter of certain characters and certain books kind of rise or fall over mm-hmm. the years, depending mm-hmm. on life experience and other mm-hmm. factors. I, I think persuasion has become more appreciated. Mm-hmm. I also think Mansfield Park has become more appreciated because you know, when I started doing Jane Austen in 1990, 1991, it was groundbreaking for me to point out that Fanny Price is a victim of both active and passive child abuse. Hmm. And all these great critics wrote about how dull she is and how boring she is and we don't want to have supper with them. But Fanny Pride, you know, that novel has become more appreciated. Of course, Pride and Prejudice is always a favorite of, yeah. of, of readers. Um, and, and it's because Elizabeth Bennet is so much fun. Mm-hmm. She is a fun character. And you can see why Darcy loves her. He says at the end of that novel, when after they are engaged, when he makes his second good good proposal, she says, "You know, t- tell me the truth. Was my teasing you? Was that was that offensive to you?" And he said, "No, I would say I loved you for the liveliness of your mind, hmm. and that yeah. is why re- we readers enjoy Elizabeth Bennet so much. She is very lively." And, you know, and the reason that Darcy loves her is that she's the one woman who's not dancing pirouettes of admiration around him. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, when when we, yeah, that, that one forever will have a, a very high place for me. Just That's where for I call the, no- the novel of my heart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of my younger colleagues had, has a son, a little boy who, uh, 
Shortly after I retired in 2012, I retired at the age of 62. Uh, so you can figure out now that I'm 71. Um, her little boy had to have pediatric brain surgery. And she texted me that she was rereading Pride and Prejudice when she was in the children's hospital up near Anschutz, mm -hmm. uh, University of Colorado Hospital, because she knew it had a happy ending. Mm -hmm. So it was comforting to her to take her mind off her, her son's little brain being oh, operated on by this world famous pediatric surgeon. Yep. No, absolutely. And and revisiting. There's such a comfort in rereading many different books, but especially something like this where there's the familiarity of old favorite characters, but like yeah. we talked about, there's also every time you discover something new too. So you, yeah. I, you know, and I continue to discover new things mm -hmm. about these characters. I just don't write about them anymore. Because I, I feel, and, and the dean of our college, Dean Vidler, we both love opera. So we go to the Metropolitan Opera High Definition Saturday matinees at Tinseltown. Mm -hmm. And I said to Lynn, you know, I don't write scholarly articles anymore because I feel that young assistant professors who need to get tenure, you know, or to publish or perish, they need to fill mm -hmm. the pages of academic journals with articles. And Dean Vidler Lynn said to me, I wish everyone who was retired felt that way. Yeah. I, you know, I think, and I know some Jane Austen scholars who are long retired, they're in their eighties and they're still writing, you know, and some people think, well, it's wonderful that they're still writing, but I think you need to be academically generous to mm -hmm. younger scholars. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to other friends who say they don't have anything else in their life but Jane Austen. Well, Jane Austen's a pretty good thing to have in your life, but I have other things in my life other than Jane Austen. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Have you have you enjoyed being able, as you've retired, to go back and revisit her just for fun without having to take a professional lens to it and just kind of as a fan? Yes, and it? in fact, interestingly enough, I swore I'd never write anything about Jane Austen, but in 2016, I had the offer to write a book, another book about mm -hmm. Jane Austen, and they were going to pay me to do it. You know, for academic books, you're, you're not paid. I mean, I killed myself doing the Dictionary of Literary, Bio Literary Biography on Jane Austen. Two big volumes, loads of end notes. No, didn't earn a penny. I got a lot of praise for it, but, you know, you can't take that to the bank. <laughs> and this fellow said, I'm doing a series. He's in New York City. Uh, and every... Every book is entitled Simply. So there's like Simply Einstein, Simply Darwin, Simply Marx. I did Simply Austin oh, for wow. him. And um, I enjoyed, re now this is four years after retired, after I retired. And I went back and read all the novels. But of course, you know, there are only six, plus the Juvenalia mm -hmm. and Sandy Tin. Which, it, which Andrew Davies has continued and which is being shown on PBS on Masterpiece Theater. I am not watching it. Um, I had an interesting experience with Matthew Davies, if we have a chance to. Okay. I was giving a talk uh, at the annual general meeting of the Jane Austen Society, thousands in the audience, on sense and sensibility. That was the topic of the conference. 
And I pointed out that in the movie versions of Sense and Sensibility, Marianne Dashwood is a blonde and she's very lively right, right from the beginning. If you actually read the novel, and Andrew Davies, who did a PBS version of Sense and Sensibility, they again had a blonde young actress, very lively, right at the beginning, even before she meets Willoughby. And I said, if you read the novel, you read that she is tall. She's always shorter than Eleanor in the movie versions. She's tall. She is dark. And Eleanor has a conversation with Edward Ferris. Edward says, I think, you know, he's only seen Marianne after Marianne has become enamored of Willoughby when she, so she is reacting to Willoughby. But Edward and Eleanor have a conversation. And he says, well, Marianne is such a lively young woman. And Eleanor, who knows her best, she, she is the one who knows Marianne best. She's the elder sister. She's known Marianne her entire life. She says, I would not call her a lively person. She sometimes talks quickly and is very eager about certain subjects. But I certainly would not call her merry and lively, which she is with Willoughby. Mm. So I, I give this talk. Andrew Davis is in the audience. He's, he's going to be the big speaker. Mm -hmm. I meet him at lunch, and he signs my book with admiration, Andrew Davies. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, and Jane Austen left Sanditon after chapter 12. There were very short chapters. She was dying, mm -hmm. either of Addison's disease or now some people think it's Hodgkin's disease. She started the book in pen, the manuscript, that, you know, the pen, you have to keep dipping it in and out of the ink. Um, a steel tip pen. It wasn't mm -hmm. a quill. It was a steel tip pen. And then she used a pencil. And then she was too weak to use any writing implement. So she just let it go. Mm -hmm. I prefer to keep Sense and Sensibility the way Jane Austen wrote it, not the way Andrew Davies continued. I have great respect to Andrew Davies. I think he's a great writer, a great screenplay artist. But, you know, it's the same way in the version of uh, Pride and Prejudice where uh, Joe Wright, that was the Pride and Prejudice with, with uh, Kira Knightley, mm -hmm. and I think it's Matthew McConaughey, is that his name? Yeah. And when they have the first bad proposal scene, Joe Wright puts it out in a storm outside, and it's thundering and lightning. And it's, you know, all this King Lear pathetic fallacy out in the wild weather. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know the pathetic fallacy is the belief that nature mirrors the emotions of the characters. But in the novel, Jane Austen has Darcy and Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice have that bad proposal scene mm -hmm. in the Collins Parsonage. In that scene, Darcy and Elizabeth are emotionally too honest with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've, I have 
fought this too long. He'd be, you know, it's not the way to win a girl's heart. I have fought this too long. How much I admire and love you, but I've been fighting this forever. And and that's when she says to him, you know, about about um, his behavior. Had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, she saw him start at this. They are emotionally very honest with each other in that little parsonage. Do you think Mr. and Mrs. Collins, Charlotte Lucas, that was, have ever been emotionally honest for one minute in their married life, in their whole courtship? No. No, no. So Jane Austen sets that scene in the parsonage for a good artistic and psychological reason. Mm. Yeah. No, I was going to ask you. I'm glad you mentioned that because I I do think a lot of times in, in a lot of the adaptations, a lot of her subtlety and the nuance is what's lost. And I do think that's one of the things that the the BBC, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice yeah. does so well. And part of it is because they've expanded into a miniseries so they can take their time and dig exactly. in. Yeah. I mean, I know, I, I seem to remember that, that you, you really love that one. Are there any other adaptations that you think really stand out, whether movie or miniseries that you would recommend? I think Amy Heckling's Clueless, hmm. which is based on Emma, is wonderful. <laughs> because again, it reminds us that Jane Austen writes about human nature. Clueless is set in a Beverly Hills high school in the early 2000s. And Cher thinks she knows everything. The Cher character, mm-hmm. played by Alicia Silverstein. And she brings out, you know how Jane Austen's characters represent human nature that were, it's as true in 1813 as it is in 2003, 2004. So I I think clueless. You know, I, I met Amy Heckling. We had a Jane Austen Society conference in Los Angeles and Amy Heckling was invited to be a speaker. I'm president of the Jane Austen Society at that time. So I one session ends and I decided to leave during the applause of the speaker because I knew I had to introduce Amy Heckling. So I run out of the big conference room at the hotel, the ballroom, to the ladies' room. And who's in the ladies' room doing her hair and fixing her makeup but Amy Heckling, whom I'd recognized from television. Mm-hmm. So I said, you're Amy Heckling. <laughs> and she said, yes, I am. And I said, I had a name tag. You know, I'm Joan Ray, president of the Jane Austen Society of North America. She said, you must hate me. I said, no, I love you. I think Clueless is one of the best, if not the best, adaptation of a Jane Austen novel. And, you know, we walked back arm in arm. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it was a, a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. And also to see how humble Amy Heckerling was. Mm. Well, I think, like you said, that speaks to when an adaptation like that can be that successful, it just shows how timeless these works are. And to your point about human nature, you know, they may continue to do them in a very traditional way. They may continue to take them, you know, Bride and Prejudice from Bollywood or some of these different yeah. takes. I mean, it spreads across the world, but there's so many different ways. It's just amazing to me how she continues to engage people's minds and, and they keep revisiting her. Yeah, it's, too it's bad so she's not. she didn't make any money on that. So I know. Well, I mean, we can close out here in a minute, but I did want to ask you, I mean, I was thinking about it. She died at the age of, I think it was 41. Yeah. It's so tragic to think 
of that and where she might have gone. I mean, do you have, I, obviously this is just conjecture, but do you have any thoughts on if she had lived longer, where her works might have taken Well, her? you know, I look at Sandyton, mm-hmm. which is really a hilarious comedy in the first 12 chapters that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think she was moving in the direction of Dickens. Mm. who has that same kind of humor. I mean, his novels are serious, but have humorous characters. Mm -hmm. And I think Jane Austen was moving in that direction because by the end of chapter 12, where she puts down her pencil, because she doesn't have the physical strength to write anymore, we do not know if Charlotte Haywood who she's going to become involved with. Whereas right at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, when early at the Marachin Assembly, Darcy doesn't ask Elizabeth to dance, and he says, she's not handsome enough to attract me. You know they are going to get get together. <laughs> right. You know, same way in um, Sense and Sensibility. You know, Eleanor Dashwood feels attraction to Edward Ferris and Edward is actually attracted to Eleanor, but he made the mistake of getting engaged to Lucy Steele mm-hmm. a year earlier. And Edward is so shy and so introverted. And, you know, Lucy is so manipulative. Uh, you know, so you know where it's going. Mm-hmm. But the Sandyton, you don't know where Jane Austen was going to take that. And I think she may have been moving in the direction of Dickens, but we'll never know. I know. We'll never know. Yeah, it's sad, but also interesting to think about. Well, Dickens is one of my favorites, so that makes me even more sad that I yeah. don't get to see where she goes next. But Yeah, I, I, I love Dickens, too. But, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I did the 18th century. Uh, I love the 18th century because it's the age of satire. Mm-hmm. It's the age of letter writing. You know... Pride and Prejudice was originally written as an epistolary novel, which is a novel told in letters, an epistle, like the epistle of Paul mm-hmm. to the Corinthians. It's their letters, because epistolary novels were what was popular in the day. And she had written Pride and Prejudice as, not under the title Pride and Prejudice, but as an epistolary novel. There are still 20 letters, if you count them in over 20 letters in Pride and Prejudice, you know, and then there's that big letter in the middle where Darcy writes to Elizabeth Mm. and Jane Austen, again, what a great novelist she is. She gives that letter to Elizabeth and we read it as Elizabeth reads it. Mm -hmm. So we come up with our own reactions before we know Elizabeth's reactions. It's only in the next chapter after we read the letter, which stands alone, that we hear Elizabeth's reactions. And then she says, how foolishly I have acted until this moment I never knew myself. I mean, that's as big an insight as a Greek tragedy hero Mm -hmm. who realizes, you know, I mean, the greatest knowledge you can have is knowing yourself. Yeah. So she's just a great, great artist. She is. And it's amazing, too, that as you 
spend more time with her, you realize how many things she like what a huge impact she's had on the novel, obviously, but even our culture. Mm-hmm. Like she just continues to ripple out through the decades and the centuries. It's And she never had a creative writing course. You know, she 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 was really a, a genius. She was also very well read, I hasten to add. You know, she, her father had 500 books in his library, the Reverend George, George Austin. That was a huge library in those times for a non-noble man. Mm. When I talk about nobles, I mean, you know, dukes, earls, viscounts, mar- marquises. Um, and she, you know, she couldn't go, she went to school young. You know, they sent girls off to school when they were young. Her mother taught her how to read, do simple math. Her mother also taught penmanship. So that's why her mother's penmanship, Cassandra's, the sister's, and Jane Austen's penmanship is almost duplicate because mm. her mother taught them both how to how to wield the pen. But um, she probably read a lot of those books. She read Shakespeare. She read Milton, you know, stuff that we have trouble getting college students to read. She read maybe when she was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And I like to think that when her brothers were home from Oxford, their evenings were like a senior seminar on Milton, Mm. on Paradise Lost, or Hamlet, or As You Like It. Mm -hmm. I think they discussed books because they were a family of readers. She writes that in a letter. We are a family of novel readers and not ashamed to be so. Mm. yeah yeah between that and her her studying of human nature it starts to give you some idea but on top of that like you said at the end of the day she's just a genius she does things she is and very observant as that as that woman wrote um i think her name was maybe mariah middleton but don't quote me on it but she she was like 12 and jane austen was like 30 Mm -hmm. and but you know little kids watch things as we know and and she she remembered as a much older woman, she was not so much participating in the conversation, but looking around, you know, and it's very interesting. Sometimes you meet someone and you think, well, she's just like Mrs. Jennings. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or she's, or gee, he's just like, I mean, I, I had a, a, a much younger friend who broke up with her husband and it, it turned out, you know, he was like Willoughby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it yeah. carries on through time and, and the human nature. Yeah. Which I'm amazing. sure you are not Paul. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, but Trevor and I were talking about this, how it is fun to try to um, figure out who you would be as a, as a character, like which one or people around you, it comes up often. He was yeah. saying, you know, different people he knows, like, yeah, who they might connect themselves with. So it's it's kind of fun to think about, and it just shows, like you said, throughout time, people don't change as much as we like to think. No, about. human nature always stays the same. Yeah, and will yeah. always stay the same. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. you I could talk for welcome. hours, you but welcome, Paul. yeah. Well, thank you, and thank you again for inspiring um, my love for Jane Austen. It's something you that are I so just welcome. I mean, I got paid life. to do it, but. I, I always, I always loved teaching that senior seminar. I loved all my classes. It, yeah. You know, I had a wonderful career. It was so wonderful to have a career doing something you love. Mm-hmm. I also love research. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I dreamt I died. I went to heaven one time, and it was the British Library, <laughs> uh, which is you know one of the great libraries of the world. Mm-hmm. I've spent so much time in the British, the old British Library, in the British Museum uh, on Great Russell Street. But uh, I, I've had a, I had a wonderful career, and I retired at sixty two because I knew there were PhDs out there who needed job tenure track positions. Mm-hmm. There were 283 candidates for my position wow. in the 18th century novel. I mean, yeah, oh, that's amazing. We well, had people, people from Columbia, Cornell, University of Chicago, apply, you know, I mean, great mm-hmm. schools mm-hmm. Uh, to come to UCCS to teach 18th century British literature. Yeah. Well, I hope they do half as good of a job as you did in kind well, of. Well, I'm sure he <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, here we are. We're back again. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I, like I said before, have not heard it yet, and neither has Paul, as we reconvene to record our our thoughts on the last three novels and get into the poll results and our own rankings. Um, but I'm excited to to listen to it. But let's let's get back to it, Paul. The next book we're going to be talking about, Mansfield Park from 1814. This was the the one that uh, the other one that I left off of the poll, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thinking, oh, we need to have four of them. Let's put all of the other four, be, uh, you know, let's leave Northanger Abbey and Mansfield Park off of the poll. And I, it would not have, it, well, who knows, you know, people maybe didn't see that I asked for responses. It would not have made a difference in the rankings because it didn't get enough write-ins to to get into those top four books. But I got a lot of feedback on this one. People yeah. thinking, hey, you know, what are you doing leaving off the best uh, Jane Austen book? Um, Linda Grant was the first novelist, Linda Grant. Mansfield Park, oddest and darkest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've had her, um, you know, she has been very generous to share thoughts on other things in the past, uh, especially where she and I differ, like on John William Stoner. Um, when I did a podcast on it several years ago, uh, I asked her because she disagreed with my assessment, I said, will you please write up something? You don't have to, but would you please? Because I'd love mm-hmm. to hear it and share it um, so that people don't just get my you know, perspective and, and get have in mind some of your criticisms. So she's always great to do that. And I appreciated her jumping right in, mm-hmm. jumping right in and basically telling me your poll is stupid <laughs> in, no, so, in no, no words like that. But right, at right, any right. rate, um, there was a lot. And then Rachel, Mansfield Park, and it's not even close. The way Fanny's circumstances shape her character makes her more, most the, makes her the most interesting heroine to me and her romantic journey the most fraught. Fanny denying Henry is the boldest display of strength of any Austin heroine, in my opinion. I think mm-hmm. that's a fair assessment. You mm-hmm. know, one of the strengths of this book is that um, Fanny Price, and we'll get into, I guess, the plot here in a second, but she has clearly been put in her place time and time and time and mm-hmm. time and time and time again to where she can be perceived as a fairly weak heroine and, um, you know, a little bit lifeless. 
and I think that's on purpose, you know, on mm-hmm. Jane Austen's part to an extent. Uh, whether it works for you or not is another another question. Um, Susan Pigman says, Mansfield Park is my favorite. One of her most subtle, complex plots and events that reflect more of the wider world. And then I have a long one here, Paul. You, you okay. can gear up for this. This is great, though. This is from our good friend Kim, or Colin Bourne. Um, Cole, as we've often called her in the past. Mm-hmm. And she she wrote a good one. She promised that she would. And here it comes. I don't think I've shared this with you. Mm-mm. So this is some thoughts on Mansfield Park. The worst thing about reviews of Mansfield Park are that they focus very simply on A, Fanny as a prig. B, Henry Crawford as a young man who could who could genuinely be reformed by Fanny's example. Her supposed priggishness is further condemned by its alliance with her Christian faith, wholly out of fashion with most readers and reviewers today who simply do not get what it might mean both for Fanny and for Jane Austen writing. And then she she says it could be because she has a Christian faith and have been married to the most wonderful person and one of the best priests in the Church of England for 33 years. <laughs> so, you know, she is, she is talking about that, but... Um, it says there's a very good essay which describes Fanny as an object of child abuse, both by her own birth family, who you know like we have to say they, they neglect her and send her off oh, to, yeah. to live at Mansfield Park with her uncle um, and, and aunt, well a, two, a few aunts, <laughs> um, and then these other cousins who are all older and and kind of look down on her from the get go, um, and let's see. Uh, both by her own birth family and by her adoptive family, of course, notoriously by Aunt Norris, but bullied by Sir Thomas, mostly overlooked by her cousins and treated as a servant. Mm-hmm, all fair. Her mm-hmm. personal resilience and self-effacement in dealing with this is probably part trauma response, but also a powerful example of patient endurance and the thankfulness of her very privileged position, albeit in a household to which she is an imposition and peculiar addition. Fanny's own personal sense of humility... A good moral quality in itself is ground together with an imposed inferiority by virtually all other characters, bar Edmund, you know, the, the hero, the, the, mm-hmm. the, her cousin that she loves. Who's like the only, this is me now talking, the, the only one who really treats her with any kindness and naturally she, she loves him and latches onto him. Uh, interestingly, he is a fairly colorless character, <laughs> though attentive and concerned for Fanny when no one else pays attention to her physical needs. He is obtuse to his own emotional blindness, but where he is clear is on his calling to the priesthood. And I I think Austin knew personally of the inner drive and depth of feeling that a true religious vocation can have from her brother and gives it to Edmund. He is honestly called to serve and only Fanny appreciates this and what it means for an individual since she is humbly serving in her own life, albeit to the neglect of her own person. Probably the fault I could most accuse Fanny of. So many people love the Crawfords, their wit and a la mode cynicism cynicism and mischievousness. But when you reread Mansfield Park a number of times, you see very plainly that their lives are not just superficial and without a basis of morality, but that to charge, sorry, but that to change, to be redeemed, they cannot exert themselves on their own behalf any more than Lady Bertram can, but look to others to do this for them. Edmund for Mary, although she has no desire to change herself, but far more so for Fanny for Henry. These are the two, these are the Crawfords, Henry and Mary. Um, they kind of come into Mansfield Park and Edmund, you know, Fanny's cousin loves, uh, loves Mary, or at least he thinks he does. Mm-hmm. And she does not want anything to do with him if he's going to be um, a, a, a clergyman. 
She does not want that. She just doesn't want it. Um, he thinks maybe she'll change someday. And then there's Henry, who's um, uh, kind of a, a scoundrel and and flirts with both of her other cousins, including one who's already engaged and eventually will be married. Mm-hmm. Um and he eventually falls in love with with Fanny, though only because he says at first he's going to make her fall in love with him. Won't that be a nice, fun game to his right. sister? Um, but yeah, uh, he he does start to to give glimmers that maybe he would change um, because of Fanny. Henry does seem to want to change, but not for his own sake, but for Fanny's, and looks to her to make him good. Fanny has to remind him that it is only in oneself that one has the power to become a better person. There are legions of men in the world who insist, like Henry, that a virtuous woman will help them be a better man. It then becomes a woman's responsibility to save them from their bad behavior. Fanny is having none of this. In that sense, a very modern second-wave feminist, she believes in mutual support and respect and to get on with the proper work of life, not to be admired as a model of morality. And here's her last paragraph. says, I absolutely love this book. It's in my top five reads ever. It deals with the real pressure to be a certain kind of person, to go along with misbehavior, especially when there is an underlying obligation of duty or gratitude being demanded. I love passive heroes. Uh, Christopher Teachens of Parade's End is another such, and possibly the prince in The Idiot. Even if Fanny is sometimes like a bump on a log, just resolutely, sometimes silently sticking to her resolve, that to me is as heroic as daring doom. She has the great, the greatest strength, nerve, heart of all of the Austin heroines. She is their only serious introvert, and for 99% of the book, her suffering, common to all Austin heroines, is hidden, secret and unspoken and unobserved by any other. Every other Austin is light and f- fluffy compared to this. Persuasion comes second, in my opinion. There is a reason why these are her later books. The play acting, the immense drama of the walk around the woods and interplay of the characters there, the Dick- Dickensian sojourn to Fanny's birth family home in Portsmouth. Yeah, very Dickensian. Mm-hmm. It's all got richness and depth of a kind unequaled in the other books. Its focus is on one family, one hearth, and what makes it a lax but strict, cold but welcoming uh, house into a proper home. All best wishes from Kim. Kim, thanks so much for for sharing that and giving us all of those thoughts because I certainly would not have been able to do this uh, justice um, and and present that viewpoint um, that that you do. So, uh, really, again, thank you very much for that. Yeah, that was great. I love what she said about the passive strength that Fanny displays because. Yeah. When I started rereading this, this is the one that I probably had the least strong memories of when I revisited it. And I will admit for the first part of the book to kind of being like, uh, you know, Fanny's a little bit of a, you know, wet blanket or, or just kind mm-hmm. of like blah. And then as you, you read, you through, see her as her cousins do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, honestly. And by the end of the book, I would absolutely agree the complexity of this book. This might be her most complex book in, in some ways, just all the different things that are going on and in the way that, you know, I, I don't know, like Henry Crawford is a good example of he is not he is a scoundrel in some ways. But then you start to see the damage that's been done to him and, and how it's playing out. You see that with Fanny, just like Kim pointed out. So, yeah, I don't know. I this one really messed up my rankings or at least called this is one of the books when I was trying to think of how I would reassess my favorites. This mm-hmm. one, I may be changing it still in my mind <laughs> up until the last minute. <laughs> Thanks to Kim. <laughs> yeah, Kim, Kim added even more to it. Yeah, the part she mentioned about the play, I think is one of the parts that I did remember most strongly. And I think that that obviously has some huge symbolism going on 
playing throughout the rest of the book of just all these different masks people are putting on and, and the mm-hmm. way that they're trying out different things and, you know, who's interacting with who behind what curtain and all that stuff is very well done. I really like that part. Yeah. And I agree. I think this probably is her most complex, complicated, you know, there's a lot going on in it and a lot of things that are kind of hidden, which is very admirable. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I will just, I'll preview a little bit. I, I I'm not sure for me, it comes off in the mm-hmm. end. Um, but I think, and I'll, I'll, this is me now. I think it's a base based on what is it that I'm looking for at any given time. You know, there are times when this could be my favorite um, Jane Austen book, but I read the Enchanted April last April and my wife's starting it this April, the Springs out there, you know, I think that that is reflected in my rankings of these books that mm-hmm. the the things that I love about Jane Austen um aren't as in you know aren't shown as well in this book and I'll get into that like I say when we get into our our rankings here in a minute cuz I think it'll 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 play into that though I I definitely do admire admire this one yeah. and and think that Cole is right on mm-hmm. with a lot of her a lot of her thoughts I I certainly um uh, you know I'm, I'm glad that she wrote in and, and I think I may need to reread this one again um, sometime in the relatively near future. But, but at any rate. Yeah. Before we move on to the next one, I mm-hmm. just, there were two quotes from this one that I really, I wanted to touch on and they're mm-hmm. pretty short. One is just, there will be little rubs and disappointments everywhere and we are all apt to expect too much. But then if one scheme of happiness fails, human nature turns to another. If the first calculation is wrong, we make a second better we find comfort somewhere. And I thought, Hmm. wow, that was just really Mm -hmm. amazing. And it sums up a lot of what we've been talking about already. And then this is one I thought was interesting. And I feel like it was Jane Austen kind of stepping back and making like a omniscient narrator. Um, So she says, let other pens dwell on guilt and misery. I quit such odious subjects as soon as I can, impatient to restore everybody, not greatly in fault themselves to tolerable comfort and to have done with all the rest. (laughs) <laughs> and I just thought that was almost like that could almost be like her tagline for all of her books. Cause I really like it's she's impatient to restore everybody, not greatly in fault themselves to tolerable comfort. And it's like that nuance there. Like she's not gonna, it's not happily ever after, but it's if these people have tried to do the right thing, she's going to restore them to tolerable comfort. Like they're going to have a chance at happiness. And I just really thought, you know, like I said, if she was going to have a tagline for for her books <laughs> these days, the way things are marketed, I feel like that could stand for just her view on a lot of her characters. Awesome. And uh, any adaptations you've seen of Mansfield Park? I don't think I've seen any. How about you? I've seen the one from 1999. It's a film adaptation. And I I don't remember it too well, other than that there's there it does show a little bit more of the slavery that can, mm. is underlying, you know, the 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 you know the owner of the of Mansfield Park the um uh, Fanny's uncle mm-hmm. is in Antigua for much of this book because of his plantations and things yeah. there and so there's a lot on this book about what what is this saying about slavery and such and mm-hmm. this this movie at least throws it in there a bit more um as a blight on his character and then there's also some surprising nudity in this film Oh, Which wow. you know shocked me a little bit until I found out who produced the film. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> so you know you can look that up if you want to. It, it's not so surprising at that point. Um, but 
that's basically all I remember. I, I think we'll probably rewatch this one sometime fairly soon just to get back to it because, you know, it's the one I least remember, but mm-hmm. but we shall see. Well, I will say you mentioned the nudity. One of the quotes that I found about Mansfield Park said, um, ignore its uptight reputation. Mansfield Park seethes with sex and explores England's murkiest corners. So I do think, you know, I, I know it's often accused of being like a very... Um, moral book in some ways yeah and, and some people have criticized it almost to being a little bit black and white but i do think it's obviously not stated but there's a lot of stuff going on with you know the seedier parts of london and people sneaking around and things that is lurking where if you wanted to think about it and overtly talk about it you know there's there's more there under the surface than is talked about for sure i think where where people might still call it a, a moral book is that it's moralizing about those things in mm-hmm. in ways that maybe her other ones are not this one yeah. to me is is a lot more pedantic right um and fanny is a lot more of a very black and white heroine not her mm-hmm. character i think she has a deep you know th- trying to to see her as someone who has been abused her whole life and see how that has affected her character is is very complex and very interesting and important it's her views on things that are very much a, this is right, this is wrong. And she sticks to her guns and is vindicated throughout, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though no one else knows it, you know, until yeah. the end. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So you ready to move on to Emma? I or, or decided you... to move on to Emma. Okay. I, I, I saw you have a book there in your hands. Is that Emma? That is Emma. Oh, so you're chomping at the bit. I'm you're, ready. You're, you are ready. Well, let me give you one th- bit of feedback here. and don't okay. We cannot mess up Emma. Because this is Gavin Wolter's favorite book. And he's mm. he and his wife named their daughter Emma because uh, of this book. So uh oh, now the pressure's really on. I was yeah. excited. Now I'm nervous. You were excited to start giving it a thrashing? <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. Um yeah, this is one that like we were talking about how when we reassess our views of things, this one continues to rise in my estimation. And I just thought I would start mm-hmm. just reading the the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. And then it skips down a little bit and Emma doing just what she liked, highly esteeming Miss Taylor's judgment, but directed chiefly by her own. The real evils indeed of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantages which which threatened alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. (laughs) It's like, talk about just a great introduction to a character. You know, this is very much the opposite of Fanny. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. she has never really had anything to cause her much trouble. She thinks very well of herself. Um, You know, I don't know. She's just... She is I more bold her. and mm-hmm. in her opinions and will state them and will mm-hmm. meddle with people in order to see her way because she thinks she knows best. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Austin even described her as a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that. Um, even though I actually, I mean, I'm, many people do love her, but yeah, I love that. What a, what a cool premise to start out with. Like yeah. with a character who you're just like, probably nobody is going to like her besides me, but I'm just going to go for it. So I saw one before we jump in. I just mm-hmm. about how important I think she is. I saw one critic who argued that Emma was a revolutionary novel, which changed the shape of what is possible in fiction because the novel bent narration through the distorting lens of its protagonist's mind. So I just thought I'd mention that before we begin the discussion. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's a really interesting lens to look at it through. Yeah. 
Well, so I also love Emma. I love her as a character. I love the story. I love the book. I love her meddling. I love the problems that she brings on because of them. I love that she learns from them and is still a good person and compassionate. You know, a lot of what she does, she does because she is, you know, a bit arrogant and thinks that she knows best. But she is trying to influence people for good and think ways mm-hmm. that she thinks will make them happy. Um, it's it's a pretty special uh, a special book. I can see why uh, many people I think have named their children, you know, Lizzie, but Emma as well, um, uh, because of these great heroines and the, their stories. Uh, the, the, again, lively characters. Emma is another one of those that I would put right up there at the top of. You just kind of feel like she's real. Mm-hmm. And so you you can be upset by her and love her and and feel sorry for her and want the best for her mm-hmm. uh, because she is so fallible and and yet there's something good about her heart. Um, I, I remember when my wife was reading this one for the first time, she didn't really like Emma. She's like, oh, mm-hmm. this, this is so frustrating. And then, you know, speaking of my wife calling her sister to ask what Jane Austen character she thinks she most lies like, she goes, she told me, she's, I think I'm Emma. <laughs> my wife does. She's like, that's why I don't like her very much because she's so, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's a typical Emma thing to do, you know. <laughs> and and so I, but I do love Emma. And as far as uh, romances and such, I do, I love this one. I love that she has this man who she's known her whole life who's like an older brother to her and he does love her and has always, but he doesn't think that it's proper, you know, because of, you know, she's like a little sister. They're not really, Mm -hmm. but there's just, you know, this close family, family relation. And the, when she starts to kind of wake up to that and recognize how she's not only messed up other people's lives, but has also um, inhibited her own happiness Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great. And I love, I love the scene where uh, Mr. Knightley declares his love for her and the way that Austin uh, writes it. So that's what I want to share if, if, if we can, if I can for a second. Absolutely. So let's see here. Mr. Knightley, and this is toward the end, um, is talking to her and Emma doesn't necessarily know what's going on. She thinks he's about to tell her that he loves another woman. Um, and she doesn't want to hear it because she has discovered that she loves him. Mm-hmm. And so she's, she's, you know, stealing herself to hear some bad news that she doesn't want to hear from his perspective. He thinks she must know what he's about to say and just doesn't want to hear it because she can't stand the thought of, of him loving her, but he's, he's going to just do it anyway. <laughs> and she says she will listen to him as a friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes, as a friend, repeated Mr. Knightley, Emma, that is a, uh, that I fear is a word. No, I have no wish. Stay. Yes. Why should I hesitate? I have gone too far already for concealment. Emma, I accept your offer uh, to, to tell, to tell her, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on. Extraordinary as it may seem, I accept it and refer myself to you as a friend. Tell me then, have I no chance of ever succeeding? He stopped in his earnestness to look the question, and the expression of his eye overpowered her. My dearest Emma, said he, for dearest you will always be, whatever the event of this hour's conversation, my dearest, most beloved Emma, tell me at once. Say no if it is to be said. 
She could really say nothing. You are silent, he cried with great animation. Absolutely silent. Uh, At present, I ask no more. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Emma was almost ready to sink under the agitation of this moment. The dread of being awakened from the happiest dream was perhaps the most prominent feeling. I cannot make speeches, Emma, he soon resumed, and in a tone of such sincere, decided, intelligible tenderness as was tolerably convincing, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. But you know what I am. You hear nothing but true from, truth from me. I have blamed you and lectured you, and you have borne it as no other woman in England would have borne it. Bear with the truths I would tell you now, dearest Emma, as well as you have borne with them. The manner perhaps, may have as little to recommend them. God knows I have been a very indifferent lover, but you understand me. Yes, you see, you you understand my feelings and will return them if you can. At present, I ask only to hear, once to hear your voice. While he spoke, Emma's mind was most busy and with all the wonderful velocity of thought had been able, and yet without losing a word, to catch and comprehend the exact truth of the whole. To see that Harriet's hopes had been entirely groundless, a mistake, a delusion, as complete a delusion as any of her own, that Harriet was nothing, that she was everything herself, that what she had been saying relative to Harriet had been all taken as the language of her own feelings, and that her agitation, her doubts, her reluctance, her discouragement had all been received as discouragement from herself. I mean, it goes on, but I I really Mm -hmm. like this realization and the, the playfulness there. Of, of all of that. So, yeah. so good. I, I love that was just while you were reading that, I was thinking about how good Austin is at leading the reader along. And there's all these missed chances and misunderstandings. And throughout the book, you know, as the reader, it's like on a movie, you know, where like somebody's looking for someone and they're walking down the street and you see them walk right behind them, going the other direction. And it's like, no, they're right there. They're right there. <laughs> and that's kind of how you feel reading these. Sometimes it's like just one little different word, or if just one little misunderstanding hadn't happened, you know, everything yeah. would have been better. And she leads you right to that point where you're just about to lose it because you're so <laughs> ready for them to, to get together. She's so good at that, building up that tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that scene right there is, is so good at kind of that release of just like, finally. You finally. Yeah. Finally. Mm-hmm. I love just one other scene. I'm not going to read it, but just kind of, I feel like it's the point where Emma starts to turn around in this book where there's that picnic scene. Oh, uh-huh. where they all go off to this picnic and uh, it's Frank Churchill is kind of trying to entertain the crowd and kind of impress Emma a little bit. And so he keeps like making up these things. Well, Emma told me to say this and Emma told me to say this. And um, so, you know, Emma's sitting there kind of uncomfortable. And then eventually, mm-hmm. you know, she makes this huge faux pas with Miss Bates, who is this very kind, but very frustrating woman says um, something that kind of exposes herself a little bit to being dull and Emma has this time where she could make one of two decisions. And in this, in this instant, she chooses to kind of give a zinger and she really nails her and says something, you know, basically saying how dull she truly is. And there's just this horrible moment where the whole picnic, it's very awkward and everybody just can't believe she actually said it. And I feel like that is one of the key points in the entire book where Emma starts to really realize the damage that she's doing by some of her ways. And and it's kind mm-hmm. of, I think that precipitates the, the ending of the novel where she starts to come to this realization and make these connections to who she wants to be. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that scene, I, I don't know. I just thought that was one of those that has stuck with me out of all of Jane Austen's books is one of the most powerful. I love it because she doesn't entrench herself 
and with her pride just say well people should accept it you know mm-hmm. she recognizes that's not what i want to be and yeah. is is willing to change and to repent to those she hurts and be and and be humble in front of them to recognize mm-hmm. that she was wrong and to really make a difference and 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 mend those relationships rather than uh you know what others might do in their embarrassment um turn it into pride instead yeah uh, I, I love it too and mm-hmm. so adaptations paul adaptations mm-hmm. I, I love i love all of these that i've seen of course there's clueless uh, mm-hmm. which is just a fantastic movie in and of itself for so many reasons, but it takes the Emma plot and does such a, a wonderful job with it. But I love the 1996 film with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, mm-hmm. It's soft. It's whimsical. It's it's delightful. And I really love the 2009 series um, that it was on TV. You know, I think it's another one of these British television ones um, that, that plays over a few episodes because it's it's a little bit it, it recognizes and and introduces a little bit more of the darkness and the sadness mm-hmm. um, for Emma. I think it does such a great job. It's still fun, still delightful, but it's a little bit more serious, I think, than the Gwyneth Paltrow version. And then we've got the recent twenty twenty one where Anya Taylor Joy plays Emma, and mm-hmm. it is so quirky. It and is. so you know, I, I, I when we started to watch that one, I was the first maybe five or ten minutes, I was like. Oh, what is going on here? I don't know if mm-hmm. I can get quite on, on this film's wavelength. And then all of a sudden I was, and Miranda Hart playing, uh, playing Mrs. Bates is so funny as well. Or Miss Bates is so funny as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love this version. I've only seen it the once I, I need to rewatch it um, because it, you know, it did charm me and, and win me over. Um, but I want to watch it again. Yeah. I just actually watched that one this past week and Talk about beautifully shot that mm-hmm. one. The the costumes, the scenery, the way it's shot, the richness of the color. That one is just from purely aesthetic point of view is stunning, absolutely stunning. And I think Anya Taylor Joy, I really like her, and and she does a really nice job. Like you said, it took me a while because it's very like wink wink in a lot of points, and yeah. I couldn't decide how I felt about that. <laughs> and I I still think it would bear some rewatching to decide exactly how I feel about it. But once I realized that they were kind of going for it. You know, if you're going to adapt something and go for it, then you might as well just kind of embrace that. Mm-hmm. And so there were a couple points where it was a little bit maybe over the top for me. But by the end, I actually really did enjoy it and appreciate it. So, I, yeah, I think it's it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if it'll beat any of the other ones. And I guess there's a 1997 version with Kate Beckinsale that I was just hmm. seeing. I've never seen that one. Um, not even sure I knew that it existed um, but it's in her, Kate Beckinsale is in Love and Friendship. She plays kind of the uh, antagonist in that one. I think okay. it's, so you'll, you'll you know that you need to go and watch now. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll come back to some of these. You know, as I said, when we're talking more generally, but let's go on to persuasion. Um, this one also got quite a bit of uh, of good feedback. This is her her last written novel. She finished it in 1816. Um, she died in July of 1817. And then this was published, you know, five or six months later. And these are some of the the responses from uh, Rowena Mond. Persuasion. I just love the growth in the main characters. They are so very human and relatable. Stephanie Salmon. Persuasion. The older I get, the more it resonates with me. A regular reread. I would say this could have been a good contender for our Autumn Reads episode last year, by the mm-hmm. way. 
both for the the setting that sometime is in autumn and um also for the autumn feeling of life you know some things summer and spring have passed uh rachel malik uh persuasion has this focus on second relationships as well as as second chances which is just so interesting it exposes the dangers of the austin social world in a very different way from the others um and then audrey bakes it says i love all of them but while others are more joyous for me persuasion is the most moving and it still has moments of great humor Mary Musgrove cracks me up. Yes. <laughs> and and Steamy Romance, the concert scene, which surprised me the last time I re- reread it. So there's some of the, the the feedback from folks who said this was their their favorite um, Jane Austen book. Mm. What do you think, Paul? What, what, what are some of your thoughts on Persuasion? Yeah. Did you say you just finished this one? Or are you just I did. reading this yeah, one? Yeah, just last night, actually. Um, I really, I, I love it. Um, I think it's fascinating, you know, kind of what people were talking touching on there is this is the only one where the heroine is you know not washed up but you know she's an ancient 27 at the time yes Um, yes no but she just has that feeling the way they uh, say it past her bloom right exactly and so i think it's really fascinating um from that perspective of just so many of the other heroines are you know young or coming into their prime or in their very prime according to the society standards and it's really fascinating that Anne is perceived as older. They talk a lot about how her looks aren't what they used to be, you know, and all these types of things. And so I think that part is really interesting. And I also think it's interesting how she, through societal pressure and familiar familial pressure, you know, rejected this proposal early in her life. And even at the time, she didn't know if that was the right thing to do. And now she has lived with this regret and kind of the ramifications in that society of getting older and maybe she's just always going to be alone. And it's it's got some very interesting currents running through it that are very mm-hmm. different from some of the other books um, that I really like. And I like, yeah, like the idea of second chances and second relationships. It's not always somebody sweeping you off your feet. It's, you know, she has that awkwardness of, of meeting an old lover and kind of you know, there's these scenes where they're thrown together and it's just very awkward and they don't know what to say to each other. And they have all this unspoken history that's kind of bubbling under the surface. And they both assume the other one has hates them in a way. There's, mm-hmm. You know, they had this connection and they both think the other one still judges them for it. And mm-hmm. and partially, therefore, then judges the other person for being so cold. You know, they're, yeah. it's not like, oh, I still love you unconditionally. It's like, I still love you and you don't love me. and you are, how could you be so cold? You know, yeah. there's that, that resentment a little bit. Yeah. It's another, you know, Austin is so good at, at the subtleties of being a human. And I think that's one that I don't know that she covers anywhere else in her books, but just that whole, the past history and how that's all playing under the surface and all of our relationships and these mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, incorrect assumptions we're making about people, you know, who we've known from the past. So that part, I think when I was rereading it really resonated with me. And then, I also, speaking of kind of older people, I think so many of the people who've been married for a long time in Austin novels are not exemplary. They're uh, a little tired of each other. Yeah. I mean, like the, the Bennett's, you know, or uh-huh. for example, or if, and I really just appreciated Admiral Croft and his wife, yes. their relationship, because they've been together forever and they're just... They just love to hang out together. Like when they're driving down the road, she grabs the reins from him and starts steering for a while and telling him where to go. And they just, <laughs> I don't know. It was just really refreshing to have somebody 
a couple who had been married for, I don't know how long, you know, I don't know exactly how old they are, but I, I think there are times within the story where Anne will kind of look at them and, and you can sense there's some admiration there and a little bit of awe at just the fact that how well they get along after all these years and mm-hmm. they're still just kind of going through life. They're just friends, you know, and, and they just, they do things together. And so anyway, I really, that was another couple of characters who really stuck out to me on this rereading. And I really like some of the lines in here, especially how at the very beginning she introduces Anne and her sisters. So there's Elizabeth, the oldest who is her father, who's just an awful person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a spendthrift baronet who, who, definitely thinks that that's anybody's claim to real worth in the world is their title. Mm -hmm. And so he puts a lot in stock by that. That's why they didn't like this sailor who was, you know, proposing to Anne, this captain Mm -hmm. Wentworth who eventually becomes wealthy and wealthier than her father because, but doesn't ever have a title of baronet, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But um, at any rate, uh, he introduces Elizabeth then who's kind of like him, you know, prideful, uh, uh, you know, just, just not very, not very great. Uh, then he says his other, two, his two other children, and there's two, there's three daughters in this one, um, and, and so that's another thing with this one. You've got these daughters who need to figure out a way to get wealthy mm-hmm. uh, because their father's estate is going to be going to their cousin, uh, Mister Elliot, who plays a role in the novel. It says his two other children were a very inferior qual- value. Mary had acquired a little artificial importance by becoming Mrs. Charles Musgrove. But Anne, with an elegance of mind and sweetness of character, which must have placed her high with any people of real understanding, was nobody with either father or sister. Her word had no weight. Her convenience was always to give way. She was only Anne. Mm-hmm. Such a simple word, you know, even Anne, and that's that's how she is per, portrayed, perceived by, by her father and her older sister. Um, and it's not quite in the same fun way as like John Dashwood and Mrs. Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility, where they're awful people, prideful, mm. but Jane Austen's more having fun with it, like biting into there in a way that you can kind of laugh at. Here it's like, oh, those those guys are really, really awful people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. No, um, it's, it's a, I don't know if darker, it's not darker, but it's just, it does feel like you said, mature, I guess maybe is the right word. You can tell that it was the last one that Mm -hmm. she wrote and it has, I don't know. It just feels different than the other ones. It's, it's got a sadness to it and a maturity to it that is really interesting. Um, And it's a small book too. Yeah. And thinking of like with Emma, with the, the narrative being distorted by the, the heroine, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of changing how, how things go. This is very much that way too, because we don't know, you know, we always get Captain Wentworth through the perspective of Anne and she sees him angry. She sees him upset and she's, you know, all these different things. And for her, that is him not really wanting to be with her. She sees him flirting with the two uh, younger Musgrove um, girls. Mm -hmm. We, we, you know, she, she can't figure him out. And so I love how this book, the way they come to, to figure each other out is through subtext through listening to what each other is saying and not saying and mm-hmm. trying to get little clues. And finally, when Anne starts to suspect like, Oh, he might still have feelings for me. Then the way she's talking to so-and-so hoping he's overhearing is to give him some clues. You know, mm-hmm. women are not in constant. And that's actually one of, uh, one of you know, these, these lines um, she's talking to captain Harville and, and um, 
you know, Captain Wentworth, the man she loves, is listening, and she knows it. And she, she, they're talking about how inconstant a woman's heart is, or a man's. And and um, she, she kind of goes and says, uh, no, that's not a fair assessment of women. She says, we certainly do not forget you as soon as you forget us, meaning men and, you know, and women. It is per- perhaps our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You have always a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or other to take you back into the world immediately and continual occupation and change soon weakens impressions. And I, I just, I really like how she's saying that in a, in a way of, of both criticizing Captain Wentworth, but also of indicating to him, I haven't changed. Mm-hmm. I've been here the whole time. I, I am not, um, I am not changing. And there's a lot here in this chapter that kind of talks about that, where she's saying it for Captain Wentworth, but also these kind of critiques about um, uh, the roles of men and women. You know, this is this is found throughout Austen's work, but here these are these are pretty serious here. And she's talking about writing because Captain Harville is like, well, every book show, talks about the inconstancy of women. Every poem does, and she goes, yes. Yes, if you please, no reference to examples in books. Men have had every advantage of telling of, of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. Wow. You know, it's yeah. you know that's that's pretty cutting and 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 true and and astute. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, Jane Austen, some people who don't know much about her might write it off as like fluffy or just, you know, what would I actually get out of these books? And man, she was very progressive, very powerful. And and, and Carl Carl mentioned, you know, the feminism. I mean, that is very strong throughout these books. I agree. And I think a lot of people pass them off as, oh, she's just built. She's just falling into this thing. The best thing for all of her characters is to marry. And Mm -hmm. that how how retro, you know, great is that? Well, no, these are people who have, this is the society she lives in. And when right. you read it, it is horrific to think that this is actually the case. Um, and that you see, you see people doing this and being sad. You know, you see Lizzie Bennett's friend marrying Mr. Collins mm-hmm. because she has no better prospect. She needs to do this or she's going to be destitute. It isn't just like, oh, I need to marry somebody for morality's sake. It's I need to marry somebody or I am homeless. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and will die. And he is as a good a person as any I'm going to ever get. Yeah. And that's inherent in the, in the critiques here. I mean, yes, she, the, the characters fall in love and want to marry for love and, and all of that. But there's, there's a, there is criticism here. I mean, even all the way back in Northanger Abbey about some of this, this stuff that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't think it's so simplistic as to say it's um, naive. No, I think way too often she's written off is is all of those things that you just described about, you know, the, the fairy tale or or you know women sitting around chatting in a parlor or something, and that's clearly people who have not spent time getting to know these books. And that was one of the things I think that made me con- that makes me continue to love them is just the power that's involved in these. And, and I don't know, she's just so good at revealing some of this stuff, whether it's personal or societal. It's pretty amazing. Well, adaptations of persuasion, 
I've only seen the one um, 1995 BBC film with Kieran Hines playing Captain Wentworth. Um, and I really like it. It's, it's really well done. I thought it was really pretty and powerful and, and one that I've always loved. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I've seen it a few times. And I understand, I may get this wrong, but I understand maybe like there's a new one coming out or at least in pre-production um, that might be coming out. And I'm not sure if it's a period piece or if they're trying to put it into some other time period. Mm. It might be on Netflix someday. I, I was just looking at reports and I didn't copy them yeah. down. But at any rate, there seems to be another adaptation on its way, whether we'll like it or not, I guess remains to be seen, but I'm hopeful. I could, I mean, this may be a little bit silly, um, but I could keep on watching new adaptations of these just like most of the rest of the world can watch new adaptations of Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> That's a great I, point. Yeah, give me these any day over the Marvel movies for sure. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I, I, it's weird because I feel so protective of the text in some ways. So it, I don't know. It, depending on how the adaptation is done, I can, mm-hmm. I can have pretty strong reactions one way or the other, but I still welcome them. And, and I think it's amazing how powerful these books are, again, that are written off so much, but how much of an impact they continue to have on our culture in so mm-hmm. many ways. Even if it's the dumb spinoffs of what is it like Pride and Prejudice and zombies and all these things. I mean, like, or all the, you know, romance books that are written based in this world. It's amazing how many different romances. Yeah. Still how many different the ways they keep rippling out. Some, mm-hmm. Somebody who could be put into this little box like Jane Austen and just put on a shelf and that's what she does. No, I mean, I think that speaks to how powerful she's been too. the way that she continues all these years later to just have these huge impacts on her society. It's pretty amazing. It is. Yeah. It's admirable. And, and I, I love learning more about her. We haven't really talked about her and her biography and partially because I'm not, I, I, I could say the cliche things, you know, Oh, she never married. She, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. Her brother was uh, in, in the clergy and, but I do love reading about her biography. There's the Claire Tomlin that came out. Mm. I've probably been 20 years now. I read it when it first came out and really enjoyed that. I do like learning more about her and her thoughts, um, even though I never feel like I know who she is. You know, I, know. I don't feel like she's super knowable. No. Um, maybe a little bit like Shakespeare in that way. Like you can glean things and, and f- try and figure things out from her books, but uh, it, it, it's hard to put it all as biographical. Yeah. and where she's cutting and where she isn't and all of that. But it's well, kind of fun. A few years ago, my wife got me a, um, the Folio Society, you know, they have mm. such gorgeous books and she bought me Jane Austen's letters, which I will admit I have not yet read, but I'm curious to read and get some little glimpses maybe into more about her personality. But one thing I think about when I read her biography is just, oh, she died at the age of 41. Mm-hmm. Like what a loss to the world. Like, can you imagine just, where she might have gone, you know, she had died while partway through writing Sanditon, but, mm-hmm. you know, seeing how she progressed from Northanger Abbey up to Persuasion and just how much she changed and, and the different topics she was touching on. I just, and the uh, different you, you ways, what, sorry, yeah. the different ways that she is writing these books, mm-hmm. the different, the different narrative techniques that she is spearheading. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, absolutely. I'll, I know. I was just going to say, I mean, you just wonder, what might've come, you know, it's one of those tragedies just to think of these great works that might've been, if we could have made a top 10 listing and there were 10 books to go through, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, let's, let's do this now. So we got our poll results from people on, on Twitter. 
Um, I'll just run through those, and then we'll we have to do ours to kind of cap off this episode in a foolish way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Northanger Abbey, like I say, had uh, just a, a, a couple of votes, a few votes there. Uh, Mansfield Park had nine. You know, I got the feedback, but still only nine who said mm-hmm. Mansfield's my favorite. So I only counted those nine. Um, this is where I started to get a little bit surprised, though. These are now in the percentages, so I'm going to give full percentages of the of the the poll results. Sense and sensibility in fourth place. What is going on here, folks? This is why <laughs> Simon had to jump in. But it's not so much the placement as it was seven point seven percent. Is all. Um, Emma in third. This was really causing Gavin. Um, some problems, you know, I think he stayed off Twitter for a while after this, just couldn't handle this, yes. this irreverence towards his, you know, game coming his, out of his ears. Yeah. It got 17.4% of the vote. So not even, you know, a fifth. Pride and Prejudice is in second place wow. with 33.8% of the vote. Pretty good margin. You know, that's, that's a third, third of the people. Mm-hmm. Persuasion still blew everything out of the water with 41.4% of the vote. Like that's if you put two books head to head, you expect those kinds of numbers of 41, you know, percent. Usually when you have this many options, they're more Mm -hmm. in the teens and twenties, you know, percent, but people really came out for persuasion. All, you know, 41.4% of people voted for persuasion. That's fascinating. This is in a poll that includes... Books like Emma and Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, still persuasion. Just, you know, I did not expect that. No. And and here's where I'll start to kind of give my hand a little bit with my poll. Uh, I would have agreed with this poll when I did it before I'd reread some of these. I had persuasion as my favorite for a good couple of decades. Yeah. You know, what's your favorite Jane Austen book? Well, I love them all, but uh, persuasion is my favorite. It's It's not there anymore, Paul. Interesting. Not there anymore, um, and I'm a yeah. little bit surprised. And maybe, maybe I feel like I'm betraying myself. But no, it's very interesting. I I had a very similar experience. Do you do you want to dig in first, or do you want me, how do you want to do this? All right. Should we go like six through one and kind of both like take turns? I don't know. I don't know what the best way. I don't know if it's best just to spit it out, okay. and then just chat about Put it, it off or, your chest. Or, or to do it this way. But okay, I'll I'll, I'll go ahead. Because I probably already tipped my hand a little bit too. My number six, Mansfield Park. Mm. I admire this one um, for many reasons, but I do not love it. And I think, again, it has a lot to do with what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of it to be fairly pedantic again. I do find Fanny, as much as I admire the depth of her character, I find her positions on things and her stalwartness to be kind of boring. Um, a little bit, you know, a, a, just just not very, very thrilling. I have to dig under the surface to really start to get riled up about what's going on here. Not mm-hmm. a fault of the book and not a fault or a slight on people who do prefer that or want that. But for me right now, I was reading it and just thinking, this is really going to into a lot of complicated areas. And then there's this one, you know, view on them that is clearly being, being presented as, as right. And, you know, all the amoral characters are, are per perpetually amoral i like the ones where people have a change emma you know i love that she is so flawed and changes uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, lizzie bennett flawed and changes um, marianne dash i mean these are the ones i talked about as we were going through this of my favorite characters even you know if i'm if i'm looking at this even Anne elliot in persuasion was a little bit more boring to me this time around 
because she's very much just kind of there and, and constant in her, in her views and in her love and in her worth, you know, she's great, but she doesn't have, you know, her change is to recognize that her, you know, the captain Wentworth still loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't find that's per, you know, particularly interesting right now. I'm looking for that. Yeah. And, and I'll admit it, the romance Mansfield park stinks when it comes to <laughs> romance. I mean, look at it. So yes, Fanny price loves, um, loves Edmund. They get together in the most offhanded, just, you know, oh, I need to bring this to a close kind of way that I just, I while I like the paragraph, here it is, very end of Mansfield Park. Um, this is this is talking about kind of wrapping everybody else uh, up a little bit. And basically, it's like, oh, and eventually Edmund and and Fanny do do come together. Mm-hmm. and start to to love each other and um whether fanny herself were not growing as dear as important to him in all her smiles and all her ways as mary crawford had ever been i mean it's that's not a very high compliment mm-hmm. and whether it might be, not be a possible a hopeful undertaking to persuade her that her warm and sisterly regard for him would be the foundation enough for wedded love I purposefully abstain from dates on this occasion that everyone may be at liberty to fix their own, aware that the cure of an unconquerable passion of unconquerable passions and the transfer of unchanging attachments must vary very much as to time in different people. I only entreat everybody to believe that exactly at the time when it was quite natural that it should be so, and not a week earlier, Edmund did cease to care about Miss Crawford and became as anxious to marry Fanny as Fanny herself could desire. Compare that to, you know, Mr. <laughs> Knightley and Emma falling in love or the second proposal in Pride and Prejudice or any number of these other ones, you know, when when Edward comes and, and uh, comes back after Eleanor has thought he's off married and she realizes he's not married, you know, he's right. here for me. <laughs> They're so fun. And this one was just like, oh, mm. not a week sooner than was appropriate. They They found out they loved each other. So that's yeah. why I put Mansfield Park at number six. Um, Northanger Abbey, I put at number five. I do think it is hilarious. I, I do love it. And I loved watching the, the um, adaptation last night. Um, you know, it makes me wonder how much how much of my feelings for these and, and some of the fun that I get from them is from an adaptation that just does mm-hmm. something really well. And maybe I would never feel that way about the book if it weren't for that. But certainly, uh, I think Northanger Abbey is is a strange thing you know with two very distinct parts one yeah. first half at bath and then the oh let's sh- now leave a lot of that behind and go to northanger abbey um but i still really i do love the fun of it this was the most surprising thing though i i moved persuasion all the way from number one to number four on my list not because wow. of any like oh i now hate this book i i love it it's still so nice and so um, I just, I, I do, I love it. I love so much about it. I love the techniques of how she tells the story. I love the, the, the constancy of that love and of figuring out that it's still there and the hope mm-hmm. that that brings the sadness too that it, it seems mm-hmm. to, to dwell in. Um, but as I'm sitting there trying to do this, I'm like, which, which stories do I just want to go back to mm-hmm. my number three pride and prejudice this 
I mean, I'll just say it. These could be in any order for many reasons, but number three, Pride and Prejudice. Number two, Sense and Sensibility. My number one favorite Jane Austen book is Emma. And, you know, even when I was saying Persuasion was my favorite, Emma was my number two. So Mm -hmm. Gavin, there you go. You know, there's, there's some vindication from that poll where people put Emma in third place, you know, just crazily. Mm -hmm. It's, it's my, it's my number one. Um, Just adore it. But, but again, Sense and Sensibility, so much joy in rereading it this past uh, little bit. Um, I just, yeah. There, there you go. There you go. Well, I can't, I can't even well talk done. too much. <laughs> no, I'm going to, I'm going to struggle. I don't know if I'll be as eloquent as you were because this is, this is rough because it, <laughs> it's like choosing your favorite child. They're all so good, but I will run through mine. I, for number six, I, I struggled, but I ended up putting Northanger Abbey there mm-hmm. despite the fact that on a reread, I, I had so much fun with it. I loved it so much, but you don't I really do. like fun. You know, you are a more glower. Yeah, We've learned that right. over the last that's right. year. <laughs> because I hate fun. I put Northanger. No. <laughs> I just, I, if you have to start nitpicking, it does seem a little bit more disjointed yes. than some of the other ones, a little more unpo- unpolished. The two halves don't necessarily fit together perfectly well, which mm-hmm. was something I hadn't remembered. I remembered mostly the second half when I was thinking back to when I had read it. I didn't have a lot of memories of that first half of the book. So when I reread it, I was kind of surprised. But again, I loved it. I mean, obviously, it's so much fun. And I really enjoyed all of the the searches through her rooms for the boxes full of secrets and all that stuff is so much fun. But had to pick some to be the last one. And that's the one I went with. Yeah. Number five, I chose Mansfield Park. This one, I really struggled as I was rereading it. There were times where I was thinking it was going to be my least. It was going to be number yeah. six. There were times where I was thinking it might even make a run up into the upper third. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But by the time I kind of finished it and had some time to think about it, you know, I, I did gain a lot of respect for it. And I, I really, I think it's probably one that bears rereading maybe as much or more than some of the other ones. So I plan to revisit it, but I did end up putting that one number five. This is where I might make some enemies, including you. No, no, uh, no, no, no. We're I, no, I know I how this is. I yeah. know how this is. Number four, I, I went with Sense and Sensibility. Um, some of this could be a little bit of recency bias. It's been a while since I've read it. And some of these other ones might be fresher in my mind. But as much as I love the relationship with the sisters, as much as I love mm-hmm. some of the different, you know, Marianne and, and some of these different things we talked about, there are times when, I, at least in my memories of reading this one, where I kind of got bogged down a little bit more than I did in some of the other books where I wasn't carried carried along quite as easily yeah. as I was. And so that was, you know, as I'm just trying to nitpick and, and move some of these around, that was how I justified number yeah, four for that one. That's what we're doing. We're trying to yeah. figure out these little things that yeah. click or don't click. <laughs> exactly. So, But I will say that that's, that is probably the one that I might reread next just to see if I really still feel that way. Um, okay. So I had something very similar to what happened to you happened to me persuasion. If people asked me for years, what's mm-hmm. your favorite? I would have said that one. Um, it went down to number three, um, for a lot of the same reasons you just talked about. It's, it, it's probably the one, if I was going to pick one that was just the most polished and well done, it might actually be persuasion. I think it's definitely her most mature and there's so much to admire about it. And so many of our, our listeners, we're so eloquent in saying mm-hmm. all the things that I do really love about this book. But for whatever reason, when I reread it this time, it didn't grab me quite to the level that I remembered it doing so. So mm-hmm. it, it did 
move its way down a little bit. Um, number two, Emma. That was one that I thought maybe might be my number four or number three. And that one actually had a resurgence the more I spent some time revisiting it. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I would have actually thought maybe as I got older that persuasion would appeal to me more with some of the Even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And instead, I don't know if I'm just feeling a little crazy these days, but like Marianne from Sense and Sensibility and Emma really drew me this time. I really enjoyed just their cantankerousness and their <laughs> just the, the way they live their lives, just going for it. So that really appealed to me and I really enjoyed it. Um, so I don't know if this is predictable or not, but Pride and Prejudice, I just if we're going on best, I don't know that I would argue that it's the best, but if we're going on favorites, mm-hmm. it yeah, continues to just, yeah, it just continues to be the one that it just brings me so much joy. I love every character for different reasons. I think like Simon said, it has some of these twists that would come straight out of a thriller, you know, just, I, I don't know. I love everything about this, including the adaptation. I think there's no way of denying that that BBC adaptation had a huge impact on my love of, of this book, but it's the one when I think of Jane Austen that just pops into my mind immediately. I love, I love Elizabeth. I love Darcy. I love everything about it. So that's my number one. That's awesome. And I wonder too, because we're rereading them, how much of the, of our admiration for some of these books comes upon reflection more than in the act of reading. It is more fun to read some of these back and forths in sense and sensibility, for example, than some of the, you know, subtext of, of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And if that, if, if in a year when it's a little bit further back in my mind, if some of the implications of it um, change the order yet again, I might not be too surprised, but looking at it just from the joy of sitting down and with a book, you know, this is where, this is where we, you know, where we both landed, I think. So yeah, that was yeah. fun. That was fun. <laughs> that was really fun. It was, it was tough, but not in a bad way. And, yeah, to your point. I mean, I think if I looked at this list in a month, who knows? There might be some <laughs> subtle shifting going on, even like as you're just sitting there mulling them over and thinking about them, different things pop up. So again, though, that's one of the things about Jane Austen that's so powerful is just she's one to revisit throughout your life. And every single mm-hmm. time you will find new things to enjoy. And uh, it's amazing. Oh, boy. Well, Paul, we have gone long. We'll, we'll see if we break this into two parts, I guess. We'll see what, what feels natural when we have it all ready to put together. But you, I believe, have an interview or a, a fun conversation coming up here in a, in a little bit. Yep. And I think we have we have stayed long enough in mm-hmm. the in, in the room. It's time to uh, to make our way back to the carriage and 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 off. So listeners, right. thanks so much for joining us this this time around and and an indulgent, but hopefully delightfully so, uh, look through one of our, you know, I think for both of us, one of our favorite authors. That, and we've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time. <laughs>